Oh, uh, an unusual early morning for me. An early morning episode of the podcast, Ethan. Very nice to meet you, man. Thanks for yeah, doing this. Good to meet you, too. No, it's my pleasure. So, Drug Policy Alliance, how far are we away? Let's, let's get this done. Come on. <laughs> well, it depends what it is, right? When it comes to legalizing marijuana, I mean, we got momentum that nobody could have believed we'd had just four or five years ago, right? So, in that sense, things are flying. I don't think it's in the bag yet, though. You know, my, one of my biggest concerns is a sense of overconfidence where this whole thing could trip up. Yeah, my biggest, over, uh, my biggest concern is that, and it's also like Jeb Bush, and guys like that, like if those guys or that fat fuck from New Jersey, Christy, Chris Christie. Can you believe the Crapola coming out of his mouth on this stuff? Somehow he's going to identify that niche of the Republican Party that wants to keep locking up people for weed. And then Rubio was saying stuff like that the other day. So. I have a theory. Yeah. I have a theory. I think what he's trying to do is make sure he's never president. <laughs> I really do. I really think that that guy is so deeply in, embedded in corruption in New Jersey that the moment he actually becomes a serious candidate for president, I think this shit is going to come out of the closet like a broken fire hydrant. Yeah, it He's could be, Joe. Find out. I, mean, I think also his popularity has fallen so low in New Jersey right now that he just wanted to get out of town. I think that's yeah. why he's running president. It's better than dealing with stuff in Trenton, acknowledging all the screw-ups he's had. I mean, I'll tell you something. We led, Drug Policy Alliance led that effort to legalize medical marijuana in Jersey back a few years ago. Governor Corzine, last bill he signed was that one. And then Christie came around. He diddled and doddled and didn't want to do it. Wanted to have Rutgers University grow the weed. They didn't want to grow the weed. Why? It was weird. And then finally, he went on vacation, like about 18 months this term. He came back and he goes, I want to do this now. And I kept wondering whether he had a puff on vacation. <laughs> you know, I mean, who knew? Now, mind you, New Jersey's still hobbling along, you know, and Christie. The funny thing also is when it comes to ending the drug war more broadly, he's highly unpredictable. You know, we took on the bail bond industry, the private bail bond industry is, is trying to keep people locked up for as long as possible in local jails. Really? And Christie ended up coming on our side. The you bail know? bond industry was working to make sure that people stayed in jail? I got to tell you, if you look at all the corrupt actors in the prison industrial complex, you know, you got the prison guards union, you get the private prison corporations, the private bail bond industry. I mean, if ever there was a sordid gang, that had to be it. And so we led that effort. We got Christie to come along with us, push them back. You know, so Christie's done some decent stuff. He'll talk about addiction as a health issue. There was an issue, you know, people dying of overdoses, and we wanted to deal with that. And he was initially vetoing it. Then we got Bon Jovi involved. He wanted to get a photo op with Bon Jovi, so whose daughter had OD'd and fortunately lived. So, you know, he came along then. So he's been a mixed bag, but for some reason on this marijuana thing, he's just going over the top anti-legalization. I don't really get it. I think he's, I really honestly think that he's trying to make sure that he's never president. <laughs> I really do. I yeah. think he understands the tide, and I think he's terrified. I think he has a lot of skeletons in his closet. He's involved in New Jersey politics. New Jersey politics is so much more corrupt than New York politics, which is the most corrupt part of the country. Yeah, it's, although, you know, we're breaking some records in New York, you think, just last six months, but both the head of the assembly and the head of the Senate have both been indicted. You know, mm. so, it's you know, nice. it's neck and neck between us and Jersey, you know, <laughs> I, I, I got it. I mean, New Jersey's got that strong tradition of history. I remember, you know, Christie made his name by being the federal prosecutor going after these guys. Yeah. Then he gets himself involved in this Bridgegate scandal, you know, with the, the guy on one side of the bridge shut down traffic for two days because, you know, somebody had done something they didn't like. Yeah. So I think Christie had his moment back in 2012, 2011, when he was hot and riding high in the polls and his whole bullying act was going over well. 
I think he's down and done with already. He just wants to be out of town. Well, you can only shine like that as a bully for so long. Because if you're that guy that's yelling and screaming at everybody else and sticking your fat gut out there, eventually people start going, hey, man, what about you? I mean, you know the sad thing? That's the way Giuliani was. Yeah. And the only thing that saved his ass was 9-11. Yeah, you're right. 9-11 comes along, all of a sudden he goes from being like 20% in the polls to 90%, and he's the heroic mayor. But quite frankly, people were burnt out on his act, and it was only, and God forbid, we need a crisis like that gives Christie a second run. Well, Giuliani was like the antidote for Mayor Dinkins. Yeah, that's like, right. Dinkins was like this really calm, laid-back guy, and really racist. People would call him the janitor. Mm-hmm. Like Folks who weren't around mm-hmm. back in the 90s in New York don't know that, like, first of all, Times Square was a completely different animal. Mm-hmm. Like, you go to Times Square now, it's this beautiful tourist trap. It's all neon lights and shining stars. And I kind of miss the old Times Square. <laughs> it was, uh... It was seedy. It was, it was seedy. It's now got over top the other way, you know, where it's like Disneyland on 42nd Street. Who would have ever imagined that, though? uh, If you could ever go back to New York City in the 1980s and then see what Times Square was like and then come back again. You know what it is? I mean, because I live in New York City, and so I live in the center of the universe. And what you realize is that there's only so long the center of the universe can go on without, you know, people reinvesting in it. The island of Manhattan has got to be the most amazing island in the world. And, I mean, it's, it's just glowing these days. What do you really what is. do you like about it? Well, first of all, I mean, I like being in this. You know, some people say it's a nice place to visit. I want to live someplace else. For yeah. me, I want to live in New York. I want to ride that energy. And then as long as you can get out often, I mean, the key is being able to get out of town. And I'm out of town about half the time. So I get to go out, see the stars, see the ocean, you know, take hikes, and then go back and ride that energy. Mm. I love the fact that it's a pedestrian city. I don't own a car. Right. I can walk to work. I can take the subway, you know, and then I want beauty this past weekend for the first time. You know, Californians and others might not appreciate this, but you're all over the place. I drove my bike from the Upper West Side of Manhattan down to Brighton Beach, about a 20 mile bike ride over the Brooklyn Bridge, through Brooklyn, along the uh, New York Harbor. It was gorgeous. And the next day I took my bike up the Hudson River, up to Dykeman Street. So there's great beauty there. Everything's there. I could I could live my entire life and not go more than five blocks from my apartment, and everything's available. So the diversity of people living there, you know, everybody comes through there. Uh, and New York, New York's just the center. It's hopping. <laughs> to you, you know? it's perfect for you. It's perfect. My it friend really Jeff, uh, my manager actually, is a great friend of mine. He's been there forever, and he couldn't imagine living anywhere else. Mm-hmm. But he also has a house on an island mm-hmm. that he visits occasionally, and he'll mm-hmm. stay there for a week. Yeah, and just sort of like. Ugh, oh, I got to tell you, you know, the, there's this place called Fire Island, which is mm-hmm. about an hour outside New York. That's State, where he right? lives. Yeah, and so there's the fame. You know, the the Pines is the famous where all the, the gay community is, and then there's all the other little towns. Uh, you know, and I've been out there twice this summer. It, it reminds be almost a Venice. It's an island with no cars. And mm. you take a one, I, uh, my office is half a block from Penn Station. Jump on the train, one hour, then a half hour ferry, and all of a sudden on this gorgeous little island that's got no cars on it, and you just relax. And the, the no cars things is what keeps people away. Yeah. There's a lot of deer on that island. Too. There are, there, you, yeah, there used to be more. You know, Now they're putting all this birth control stuff in the water for the deer. Isn't so. that hilarious? Yeah. You know, they had birth to do it. Birth control you know? in the water or, for know, deer. Or not the, not, I shouldn't say in the water because that would be get everybody, but yeah, they had to They're deal with that something. problem. They're, what are they doing it for? In food or something? Leaving it in Something pellets? like that. Leaving it, yeah. Costs hundreds of thousands of dollars, by the way. Is that right? Yeah, they're trying to do the same thing to the Hamptons because uh-huh. the Hamptons has a, a real deer issue. And there was two options. One, bring in hunters, and they were going to hunt at night, snipers. <laughs> You're reminding me. There was a piece in the Wall Street Journal. I don't know. 
years, years ago, maybe decades ago, the Institute for Advanced Study is like, what, it's this gorgeous place next door to Princeton University. And it's where Albert Einstein was, some of the greatest philosophers and scientists. It's where they go when they're in their older years and do their thinking, bucolic setting. And they were overwhelmed with deer. So the question was what to do. Well, you couldn't shoot them in this bucolic place, right? So what they did was they hired archers, professional archers, to kill them with bows and arrows. And there was this uproar, you know, like this thunk, thunk, you know, all of a sudden, you know, there were the philosophers in the middle here, and thunk, thunk, some deer bites the dust. But yeah, you know, one way or another, you got to deal with that stuff. Well, it's food, too. These same people are eating cheeseburgers. They're eating turkey sandwiches. They're eating dead animals that are killed in a way more horrific way and live in a way more horrific condition. I know. I've always thought I have an obligation as an occasional mediator to actually see the process by which the food I eat is produced. Uh, I have to admit I've never made good on that commitment to myself. I just started doing it about three years ago. I what? started hunting three uh-huh. years ago, and uh, I'm addicted to it now. I love it. I get almost all my meat from hunting. I had bear last night. I served bear to my five-year-old and my seven-year-old. Mm-hmm. Wow. See, now me, I grew up Jewish and kosher. I'm still kosher. It's the one relic really? of my traditional upbringing. And so traditionally, Jews don't hunt. You know, although it's weird, you meet Jews from the South, you know, Jews who hunt. It's kind of a contradiction in terms. Are there Jews in the South that hunt? Oh, my God. Yeah. You know, it's part of the culture, part of the tradition. You know, most of those Jews don't keep kosher, so they don't care. So there's got to be some. (laughs) And then you got Texan Jews. They're a special breed. They got to do it. Just Texan Jews? They probably hide. Oh, Probably like Jews in Lebanon we were talking about yesterday. Oh, God. Um, when When you say that you're kosher, what exactly does that mean? Like you have to have a rabbi kill your beef and he has to like say some voodoo and then cut its throat? More or less. It's, you know, I mean, basically it's this, you know, some of it's ground in the Bible, you know, in some clause it says, do not eat the meat of a calf in its mother's milk. So you don't eat meat together with dairy. And then they say with meat, it's got to, the animal's got to have a split hoof and chew its cud. Right. right. And so it has to be a cow as cows, opposed to a pig. Actually, venison would be okay. Cow, deer, um, you know, sheep. Then it needs to be slaughtered in a special way, which for millennia was the most humane way of killing. It mm-hmm. has to be absolutely perfectly sharp. In the last couple of decades, there's now a dispute because in Europe, they're beginning to ban the kosher way of killing because it's no longer the most humane way, according to the science. Well, it takes stuff. more time. Have you ever seen it? Uh, I haven't. It's rough. No. Yeah. It's rough. I've seen it. I went to a butcher, uh, not to a butcher, rather, to a, a slaughterhouse once. A kosher, f- a kosher one. Well, they do kosher as well. Yeah. Um, it, it was a slaughterhouse for Fear Factor. Mm-hmm. We were doing a Fear Factor stunt there, and it was... The, the stunt was these people had to dunk their head in these giant buckets of blood, so we had to have this cow's blood that was chilled to slightly over 32 degrees, and we could only keep it for a short amount of time, or it could possibly contain pathogens, so mm-hmm. it was really cold water, or really cold blood, rather. So they gave me like a little tour of the place and explained to me how they do it, and they have uh, this area where they, the cow goes in, they lock the cow in place, and a piston goes through the cow's head and kills them. But they're like, you know, the guy was pretty adamant about it. He's like, we have a rabbi that comes and they do the the kosher slaughters. And he goes, and it's way worse. Yeah. It's way worse. Yeah. They, they hold the cow in place with the thing and then they slice its neck and it's it bucks and exactly. kicks and you falls know, to the and ground. Exactly. And for millennia, it was the more humane way. Because in the old days, you just knock it over the head and all this stuff. And mm-hmm. the kosher way was if the blade was not razor sharp, if it had the tiniest nick in mm-hmm. it. And you discover that afterward, the animal was not kosher. So there was a way of doing it that was supposedly better. You know, but, you know, it is, it's the one, I grew up, my dad was a rabbi, I grew up traditional and all that Sabbath observant, and this is the one thing I'm still keeping. It's like, But why? uh, Why do you keep it? 
it's partially my own sort of commitment, my, my Jewish connection, a sort of daily reminder of that. It's partially a family thing, like a family, you know, we grew up this way. And it's partly superstitious. Right. That, that this is part of my bargain with the, the cosmos, with my bargain with God, you know, that, okay, I'm going to do this little sacrifice in my life. And it's, you know, I've led a blessed life. And, uh, hey, man, maybe this is part of it. Why risk it by stopping it? Have you the only way had I'd stop, bacon? I've had, I've had some of these things by accident, like I've had ham by accident, probably had shrimp by accident. Accident. I've never had it intentionally. I don't think I've had bacon. Although when I eat in the diner, they got the bacon grease on the eggs I get. You know, I love the yeah. smell of bacon. I'll say that. <laughs> you love you know? the smell, but you've never eaten it? No, because it's just it's oh, just this thing I stuck glorious. with. Uh, what about bear bacon? Could you eat bear bacon? No, no. It's split hoof chew. It's good. That's it. But they, you don't, know? Ha- they, don't, they don't have a split hoof. You know, I, they have paws. That's what I'm saying. They need the split hoof. Oh, I yeah, see. Yeah, that's only. the thing. So, And the only exception is if you're starving to death. Then what you can eat chickens? anything. Chicken's fine. Chicken but that doesn't duck. have a split hoof. No, that because that goes into the separate category of poultry, oh, right? So you can't okay. shoot birds, but you can eat that. You can't then, shoot them? You can't, well, not. I don't think so. I think it's also got to be slaughtered a certain way. So there's kosher chickens as well. Kosher chicken, kosher duck. And living in New York, you got a lot of choices. Right. When you travel around, mind you, the kosher industry, food industry, is growing faster than the organic food industry proportionally. Really? I got to tell you, I mean, doing this thing here with you in uh, you know California, you go to Manhattan Beach now, you go whatever, you got the uh, the Trader Joe's big kosher sections, and it's not just Jews, it's all sorts of other people who still see it as, and in fact, to some extent, it is it's more reliable, good quality. The high Highest end's not going to be kosher, but in terms of reliable, good stuff, you know, people say kosher is a pretty good bet. That's interesting. More than organic. I would never have imagined that. It's not bigger than organic, but it's growing proportionally faster. Wow. And that's partially because you have Orthodox Jews are the fastest growing part of American Judaism, right? Liberal really? Jews like Yeah, liberal Jews like me have one kid. I got one kid, two kids, right? Orthodox Jews are having, you know, five or ten kids. So they're growing incredibly fast. Right, so they're a market, and you have Jewish Orthodox Jewish communities popping up all around the country. Manhattan Beach out here in California, LA's got a big Orthodox community, you know. And then there are people, African American people, see it as basically, you know, they hear this kosher is better. And then remember, the Muslim halal is very similar to similar rules. No pig, the slaughterings, I think, somewhat similar. So a lot of people, a lot of Muslims buy kosher food because for them, oftentimes, I know that something the Jews won't buy halal in place of kosher, but I think Muslims, some Muslims will buy kosher because it meets the halal conditions. Headline reads, Muslims more tolerant than Jews. There you go. There you go. <laughs> it happens. Yeah, this yeah. is that area around Cantor's Deli in L.A. Have you ever been to Cantor's? I don't think so. Oh, you gotta go. It's yeah. the best deli in all of L.A. by uh-huh, far. It's so uh-huh. good. The pastrami's off the charts. The best pastrami in L.A. It's One incredible. One of the problems, though, is some of these delis that used to be kosher, now they're just kosher style. It's like they got the pastrami and stuff like that, but it turns out, because it's expensive to pay the rabbi to, you know, bless it in the slaughtering. So I have to make sure it's actually strictly kosher. Wow, you really do get into that, huh? Uh, you know, it's, so it's, you been, it's been my thing. I got to tell you, I've had more people, more friends and others rag on me than, uh, <laughs> than for this than anything. And I say, people say, so would you ever stop? And I say, the only way I'd ever stop, I think, is if they made it a law that I had to keep kosher. If they made it a law you had to keep kosher, I'd break kosher the very next day. Well, who would make it a law? Well, that's what I'm saying. It's not going to happen in America, but I look what's going on in Israel, where the religious parties are becoming more and more powerful and dominant. And you go to Jerusalem, and they're here's the rules on the Sabbath, here's the rules on this, here's the rules on that. One can envision a generation from now that in Israel, you might have, you know, the religious folks driving everything and make a law like that. If they did that, and I'm still alive, I'll stop. So if they did that in Israel, you would stop in America? Probably. Just out of protest. 
just out of protest. Just because you want bacon. That's what's up. No. You just want that bacon. You know what happens? I'll, I'll tell you, the, hard, the hardest <laughs> thing when you keep kosher, I've never had lobster. never really had shrimp. You know, I've never really <gasps> had never pork. Had so lobster, bad. that's but right. I, the hardest stuff is when there's a beautiful steak or a beautiful piece of duck or a lamb out mm. there. And it's basically no different than the kosher stuff, but I can't eat it because they didn't pay the rabbi to bless it and they slaughtered <laughs> it differently. That's the one that hurts, <laughs> right? People, I go out to, John, I got to tell you, I go out to people and they say, oh, do you mind if I order some pork or as a lobster? I say, please, whatever you do, don't order a beautiful lamb chop or steak or something like that. That's something the one that's actually gonna, eat. That's going to torture me. There I'm eating my damn piece of fish for the eighth time that week. And, you know, it's a beautiful steak that I can't eat. So is fish always kosher? Is that the The deal? rule is if it comes from the sea, it's got to have fins and scales. Jesus Christ. So octopus is off the charts, too. Uh, you name it. All that stuff's off. Got to have fins and oh scales. All the shellfish is off and scallops and, for that matter, things like shark and skate and even catfish is the one I cheat with a little bit. And there's a debate about swordfish. I go with. I, I, I'm part of the school that says swordfish is kosher. <laughs> you, know, you know, my dad was a rabbi. He came down that side. I'm going with my dad. Is your dad still alive? No, I died a long time I would have fucking yeah. had a lobster the moment that dude was in the dirt. Oh, yeah. Hey, he didn't even grow up keeping kosher. He loved rabbit. You know, he loved oh, him. Oh, God. Yeah. When he became a rabbi, he had no choice, you know. <laughs> It just seems so odd to me that a, a rational man like you, who's obviously intelligent and educated, would follow well, that. You know what's good about this? It gives me a sense of empathy for other people with irrational attachments. Ah, yeah. like and irrational I, attachments to drugs. Exactly, exactly. Mm. Irrational attachments to anything. My view is irrational attachments are fine, maybe even good, so long as they don't hurt anybody else. Mm. My keeping kosher doesn't really hurt anybody else, right? And there's all sorts of other attachments to religious things, to types of gods, to habits, to to name it, if it's not hurting anybody else, I can kind of, you know, I got that little empathic sense for what it means to be irrationally committed to something. All right, man. Look at you. You're looking at irrational thinking in a rational way. Yeah. You I got, like it. You got to do that, you know? You got, <laughs> to be just totally rational, that'd be kind of boring, too. So let's get back to uh, drug legalization, because we've got right now, we got two states that are across the board 100%. we got Washington State and we got Colorado. What's on the ballot right now? Well, remember, also, Alaska and Oregon joined the group uh, last November. So we have four states that are legally there, and Oregon's going to open up sales, I think, in a few months. And Alaska should open up sales. I can't remember if the end of this year, beginning of next. So we got four states that have legalized, each one of them doing it with 55% of the vote, typically getting more votes than the guys who are running for governor or attorney general in those states got that, those years. Wow, right? that's so amazing. So it's big. D.C. did everything except legalize. They basically said you can grow your own, you can transfer it, but they're not, they, haven't, they haven't set up formal sales yet because people worry that Congress will sort of put a hammer on them, right? So you can't go to a store? No. No stores <clears throat> in D.C. There's a little movement on Capitol Hill right now that might allow some room there. But the guy, you know, the, the city council, the mayor in, in D.C., who are on board with legalization, but they're just saying, do we want to provoke Congress? Because a lot of those guys would just come down hard. You know, they're used to treating D.C. like the plantation, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's one of the great absurdities in American politics that you got a population of, what, six 700,000 people? I think it's as big as a few of the smaller states, but they got no representation on Capitol Hill. They got a member of the House who can't vote. They got no members of the Senate. They can vote for president, right? And then they got Congress basically, you know, the ability to veto any law they pass. 
So and they know. have an extremely fucked up situation as far as the haves and have-nots in their own town. They really do. Although it's, there's a shift in the. I mean, you know, D.C. was traditionally like two-thirds African American. Now, as it's become more gentrified, it's still about fifty percent African American. Well, the, and, the the issue is not just the African American; it's the poverty. The poverty. There's there. massive poverty and crime in certain sections of D.C. And the fact that that's the nation's capital, they can't even clean up their own backyard. Yeah, no, that's they right. Have completely ignored it. When it was really highlighted when Marion Barry was president. Yeah, and I should say it's gotten or, better. Me, mayor, mayor, it's gotten better since those days in the sense that there's been more to address those issues. There's been some gentrification. Poverty's not as bad. They still got bad crime rates. It's not as bad as Baltimore's been. Right, or a bunch of other cities. Well, Baltimore's one of the worst places in the country. Right, Baltimore's next to been terrible. Detroit, New Orleans. Although you got a few places out here in California have a hard time. Oh, for sure. DC's weird in that you can go from really nice to really bad in a couple blocks. Yeah. I was shocked when I was driving through DC because I was like, this is crazy. You've seen these really, uh, you know, cute white couples with their little stroller right. and they're in these really nice brownstones and they have a Volvo parked in front of the house and right next to them is a BMW. And then you go two blocks down and you see people drinking on the street and there's kids with no shoes on and there's it's garbage piled up everywhere. I was like, this is really nuts. That could be partially about gentrification. You know, mm -hmm. property's less expensive. So first, typically gays will move in, right? Because they don't have kids to worry about and such. And then after that, you get some young couples and others moving in. And so you begin to get that. You saw the same thing in parts of New York City, right? With mm -hmm. Upper East Side or Lower East Side. Yeah. Um, you know, it's when things begin to change that way that you get that kind of stuff. Well, isn't that the big complaint about New York City is that so many rich financial people have moved in that the entire city is kind of used to be this artist community and there's now that's kind of Brooklyn now. Well, and the Manhattan. funny thing is now they're saying Brooklyn's more becoming more like Manhattan and Queens is becoming the new Brooklyn, right? Really? And I got to say, living in the Upper West Side where it's, I mean, I'm lucky I'm in a rent-stabilized apartment there, but, and I live in a beautiful tree-lined street in a little apartment, uh, you know, but then you see the banks moving in and taking over the street corners, right? Mm. And you see more chain stores coming in. And so Manhattan has become this beautiful place, but less and less affordable. Now, Brooklyn, people, like most of the people who work for me in New York, were living in Brooklyn, but now they got to move out to the further, further away from Manhattan part of Brooklyn. And now Queens and the Bronx and Upper Manhattan are becoming the places. You know, I mean, look, the city's hopping. It's great. It's amazing. The downside of our economic growth has been that, you know, the same thing with Wall Street. Wall Street is the, the gap between rich and poor in New York City is is horrific and huge. On the other hand, Wall Street is providing massive amounts of tax revenue, and New York City taxes itself at a very high level, so we actually have better services in New York City than most parts of the world. My friend Shane was living in Brooklyn, and um, <clears throat> me and my family came to visit, and we, we hung out with him one night, and we, he had this apartment that overlooks the Manhattan skyline. And we were looking at it, and I was like, there, this might be the best-looking view on the planet. Yeah. Like, there's something about that. There's, there's like... I think there's two types of amazing views. There's the amazing views of the mountains and you know and nature, which is pretty stunning. But there's something about the the Manhattan skyline that is so insane that someone built that. It, it's, it, it's 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 the, the, like it's gorgeous because it's all lit up and the shapes are cool and it, it has the history behind it and you're looking at all this activity and bustling people back and forth. And then there's also the magnitude of the amount of effort that was put into creating something like that. Yeah. It's staring you in the face Joe, too. Occasionally I'll be on a plane that's coming from north from the north, say from Albany or Montreal or wherever it's coming from. And it 
it lands up going down the Hudson River, right? And, you know, Manhattan's basically a Long Island. It's like, I don't know, 15, 20 miles long and about a mile wide or so. And you look down at that thing and Manhattan and New York Harbor, and there's the Statue of Liberty. And there you can see Staten Island and Brooklyn and Jersey around it. And then you see the Empire State Building. And then you see the Freedom Tower. And you see Central Park in the middle of it, one of the largest, you know, inner city parks in, in the world. It, it, I mean, it brings tears to my eyes still. It's just incredible. Yeah, it's a pretty awesome spot. But you can't get weed there. Well, what do you mean you can't get weed? It's hard. You can get a weed anywhere. You got to hide. You, you got to talk to some dude. David Lee Roth got arrested trying to get weed there. You know, you got to be either really unlucky or dumb. What kind of an busted. asshole cop arrest David Lee Roth, I know. by the way? I don't know. It's I David don't know. fucking Lee yeah, Roth. Yeah. Give him a pass. Yeah, How yeah, dare really. you, sir? But I got to tell you, I think our delivery services are very well developed <laughs> in New York City. You know, Right, but they're always under the wire. Like That was always the problem that I had in L.A. before it was legal. I used to deal with this dude named Jake the Snake. That was his fucking nickname. <laughs> I'm not kidding, and he wasn't a wrestler. Jake the Snake was so annoying. He was so annoying, and he uh, he would sell. Uh, we, I would get it from my friend Eddie, and Eddie would get it from Jake the Snake, and uh, we would have to deal with this guy. So this was like we'd have these conversations with this guy yeah. every now and then, you know. And it's like, and I always felt like he wasn't a bad guy. It wasn't he was a bad guy, but it was annoying that you had to deal with this dude who was willing to do something illegal because like there were some criminal aspects I to know, it. I know. So it's always going to be like. Oh. And I got to say, I'm lucky because one of the perks of my job. I can just rely on the kindness of strangers. I mean, wherever oh, yeah. I go, people are going to Ethan. Hey, want to try a little bit? Ethan, the only thing is, it's hard to take it home with me, right? But even right. in New York, people are kind of. So I haven't had to buy weed in a very long time. I'm happy to say, you know, well, good for you. Yeah, yeah. And now you <laughs> saw that. Uh, you know, hey, <laughs> my job has got some very nice elements to it, and this is one of the informal positive benefits mm. to it, you know. But New York is now they finally the state just approved 20 outlets for medical marijuana. So most of those are going to be in the city. It's still going to be a very strict system. We led that effort in New York last year to legalize medical marijuana. Unfortunately, Governor Cuomo, you know, acted in total bad faith and made a system that's far, far too tight. Uh, no logical reason for it. But that said, they just the state just approved five companies to have five grow sites with 20 outlets. So, we're so going they're to begin locking to, down the profit aspect of it. That's they are. Doing. I mean, my God, it's going to be a boondoggle for these five, you know, that guy. Dan. That's so fucked up. Why do that? That doesn't make any sense. Is that the case for tomatoes? Is that the case for any other piece no. of produce? Anything no, grown okay. from the earth? What no. about lettuce? Can I you know. buy lettuce anywhere? I can you imagine know. if there was a company in New York that locked down the lettuce market and the only yeah. way you can get a salad from this one fucking company? Yeah. No, I agree with you totally. It's the Madness. same thing. I don't know if you heard what's going on in Ohio, right? And Ohio is going to have get to vote to legalize marijuana this year, 2015, the only initiative on the ballot this year as opposed to next year. Jamie's from Ohio. Uh -huh. He's been ranting and raving well, about it's, it's in the papers today because the initiative just qualified yesterday, right? And what they found, I mean, basically what happened there was 10, I think it was roughly 10 business interests got together, right, to put an initiative on the ballot. They each ponied up like over $2 million apiece, right? We asked for our help in drafting it, and we said we helped them draft it to get some good stuff in there. But the one thing they did that nobody likes is they put into the initiative that only the 10 investors or technically the properties they own, will be allowed to produce marijuana wholesale in Ohio in perpetuity, right? It's like you think, well, wait a second, this is an agricultural product. We're going to have a constitutionally mandated oligopoly where only 10 properties can grow for the state forever and ever. And so I'm profoundly torn because that oligopoly model in the Constitution sucks. Yeah, Jay, Jay, hand, you were talking about this yesterday. Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah, it's bullshit. It's bullshit. And you should pass on it and you should get weed illegally. That's what I say. Fuck those people. Because what they're trying to do is they're trying to take something that's good and profit off of it in a way that only they can profit yeah. off of it. Yeah. And lock everybody out. And they think they're being sneaky. They can go fuck themselves. Yeah. Well, I'm torn. Because on the other hand, if this thing wins this year... Ohio is a major swing state in American politics. 2016, all the candidates are going to be vying in Ohio. Meanwhile, the thing will only be in theory because it will not have been implemented, and there's all sorts of people trying to block the oligopoly provision. So what an Ohio win, this oligopoly provision, if it all works out well, this thing wins opens up the national discussion, forces the candidates to talk about this issue, puts it in Ohio in a major way. Meanwhile, everybody's so revolted by the oligopoly model, you already have the state legislature trying to knock it out with a competitive initiative. The thing's going to land up in the courts anyway. I don't see any of the other states adopting this model. I mean, none of the other initiatives on the ballot in 2016 have this oligopoly provision in it. I think the sense of revulsion at kind of doing that sort of thing. So my sense is, if it all works out well, Initiative wins, the oligopoly thing never gets implemented. That's why you're here, Ethan. We need to hear this. Okay. This is beautiful. We need to hear this kind of stuff. Now, do, do you face any pressure at all um, to not talk about the fact that you smoke weed yourself, being the fact that you're a part of this drug policy alliance <laughs> and you have to have put ties on and meet with some serious folks? You know, it's been an evolution, Joe, because I would say when I really got going in this in the late 80s, I was very careful about that because that was the height of the drug war, right? And, and, and not only that, my dissertation research, I wrote my PhD at Harvard, and it was on the internationalization of criminal law enforcement. So just three years earlier, I had had a security clearance. I'd worked in the State Department's Narcotics Bureau. I'd wrote a classified report on drug trafficking and money laundering. I traveled all around South America and Europe interviewing DEA guys and foreign drug enforcement guys. I'd written a dissertation and the book on international drug control. It's called Cops Across Borders. So I just knew these guys, and they, and they had opened their doors to me. And now three years later, I'm out there saying we got to talk about legalization. And at that point, when the drug war was like, it was like McCarthyism on steroids, right? It was just, so I was very discreet. I never would deny that I had smoked marijuana, but I would never talk about being a current consumer. And then as things began to ease up into the late 90s, early 2000s, I began to be a little looser with it, but I still would not say go to the cannabis cups would invite me. And I maybe showed up at the hemp fest in Seattle a couple of times, but I'd still be careful. Now the times are changing, right? And it's a lot like the evolution with gay people in America, right? At the points at which different people feel comfortable coming out and all this sort of stuff. And so now I'm quite comfortable saying, yeah, you know, I smoke weed. I've been an occasional consumer since I was 18. It's been a net positive in my life. You know, and I actually even a few years ago on psychedelics, you know, we do this big biennial conference. Um, and a few years ago, it was in L.A. Um, and I and I said, this was the content I did it. I said, you know, I'm Jewish. Right. And so once a year, I fast on Yom Kippur, 25 hours, no food, no water. I think it's good for the soul to, you know, do a fast once a year. And I say, that's the way I view doing psychedelics as well. You know, that people should keep doing psychedelics at least once a year, well into their elder, elderly years, because it's a good way to stir up the emotional sediment, the intellectual sediment, and stay honest as you grow older. And so I think, you know, I felt coming out about that as well. I think the times, you know, we're in, 
we're in a day and an age in America right now where we can talk about this and need to talk about it more openly. And what is your psychedelic of choice that you like to do annually? Well, mushrooms is sort of the standard. Right. I mean, that that's one, you know, just over crucifixion. You know, I just did a sort of mega dose, and it was it was really clarifying. How many great. grams is a mega dose? In you your... know, for me, I'm doing like a quarter ounce. You know, like six, seven grams of dried mushrooms. Jesus. Yeah, yeah. No, you You're don't want to fucking hero. You, you don't want to be around me. <laughs> Sasha, Sasha Shulgin used to call me a hardhead. You know, it's like by which he meant. You know, I needed, I need a big dose to. I mean, ayahuasca I've done a few times, both in once in a Santo Dime ceremony and once in a just a more laid back way, and that was really amazing. You know, LSD. You know that one. I mean, I, you know, I've enjoyed it. Um, I've never done a mega dose with that. Uh, you know, I think it's, uh, but it's not resonated with me the way mushrooms have. You ever do DMT? No. Well, um, well, sort of. You've done ayahuasca. You've had yeah, a milder version of it. I, I mean, there was one time somebody had made up a, a guy I knew who was a good scientist had done a made up a, a, a thing that was a combination of DMT and ketamine. Oh, and, uh, fuck that. you know, that was, uh, that fuck was, that. no, 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 he it was actually, <laughs> he was an interesting, interesting guy and he did it. I'm and sure he, he found, was if he's doing that. Well, I'll tell you something, he had found that he was dealing with significant depression and he found that this combo actually lifted his baseline depression. And now there's all this research about ketamine being fairly effective as an antidepressant. Well, we've drug. actually had a friend on, uh, Neil Brennan, who uh, talked about it. Hmm. He's uh, a good uh, friend of mine. He's a stand-up comedian. He was uh, the co-creator of The Chappelle Show. Mm -hmm. Very funny guy. And, but he's had like some troubles in his life and went through legal in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. Went through legal ketamine treatments for depression. And he goes, he wasn't exactly sure what it was going to be like, so he sits down. They do it intravenously, right? So he sits down in this doctor's office and they whack him out and he goes, dude, I'm on a 45 minute journey through the universe. He goes, it is like the strongest fucking trip I've ever been on. And I can't believe I'm doing this in a doctor's office. So I got to ask you, I was reading your bio before and I saw that you have an isolation tank yes. that you use it. Yeah. Have you ever read John Lilly's sure, book, Confessions I've read all of, of an Itinerant Scientist? I've read that. I read uh, The Deep Self. I've oh. read a couple of his well, books. Well, I remember reading that book, Confessions of an Itinerant Scientist. And for your listeners who don't know, right, John Lilly was the great, you know, pioneer of Satishian communications, communications with whales and dolphins. and dolphins and all that. And also the person who may have invented the isolation he did. tank. He right? did. And he goes through this period of his life where he starts injecting ketamine every hour on the hour in his isolation tank, like mm -hmm. 12 to 18 hours a day, almost kills himself. In the end, lives to be like in his mid 80s. Um, and that's the way in which he ventures into trying to figure out what the world is all about. My so friend Todd McCormick did D, well, has his tank. He owns his tank, and he did ketamine in that tank with Lily. Is that right? Yeah. Todd did that. Yeah, Todd. Todd did ketamine. Like, like he was about to do the tank, and uh, Lily asked him, "Do you want ketamine or no?" And he's like, "When John Lily asks you if you want to do <laughs> yeah. ketamine before you get into his tank, you say yes." Yeah. So he whacks him with the ketamine. He goes under, and apparently he was like screaming or something while he was in there because he's out of his fucking mind. First of all, the, the tank by itself is a psychedelic experience. Right. Shut the door. As long, I mean, you're you're, you're more aware and you can shut it off at any time it's more of a conscious decision to enter into the psychedelic state mm -hmm. but when you add that to the ketamine apparently it's just this unbelievable journey through the mind and Todd was just not prepared for it so Lily who had another tank next to his other tank gets in the second tank whacks himself out and visits him 
goes Oof. and visits him in the fucking ketamine dimension while they're both in side-by-side uh, -side parallel isolation tanks. Like, oh. that's something to tell your grandchildren about. My okay. wow. Forget about wow. who won the World Series. So you've done uh, psychedelics in your isolation tank? I've only done mushrooms and edible weed in the uh -huh. isolation tank. Uh -huh. The edible weed is my favorite. Yeah. The high doses of edible weed is one of the most underrated psychedelics today. There's a lot of people that don't understand that if you get a really high dose like, uh, and it doesn't even have to be a big thing. That's the thing. What they're doing today with these concentrates and hash oils, mm -hmm. they have these fucking gummy bears, man. Gummy bears that are 250, some of them, like, what is the Chiba Chews? 500 milligrams? They have 500 milligram THC Chiba Chews. If you eat one of those and get into the isolation tank, you will go on a journey that I liken to any DMT trip, any mushroom trip. Like the the Vedic texts, a lot of the Hindu scriptures, they were all written by people who were eating hash. Uh huh. Like a lot of the really crazy visuals in the psyche, it's, the Garuda and all that stuff. You see that shit when you eat it. It's an interesting joke because I tell you, for me, I mostly associate the high dose edible with just being knocked on my butt and just like you know didn't get, go high enough. Know, yeah. Well, that could be it because <laughs> there have been some good experiences and not quite. At, I know what you're talking about, but I haven't gone to that level with it. I've only gone a couple of times by accident. You know, the, 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 the real accidental ones in places where I didn't know that I was going to do it. Mm -hmm. <sighs> I've had some, like, terrible journeys on planes where, like, right before, like, I'm like, I don't like flying. It's annoying. I got to do it too often. So I'll take something, like, right when I pull up to the airport. I don't want to have anything on me when I'm going through right, security. Right. So I'll eat, like, a cookie or something right before I get. And then, like, as, you know, the bags are going through, and then I go to Starbucks, get a cup of coffee, and then I sit down at the gate, and I'm like, oh, fuck. I might have taken too much and then you know give the ticket get on the plane and then once I sit down I'm like okay at least I know I'm gonna be here for the next six hours and then <laughs> the universe dissolves and you get shot through some wormhole and to the center of your mind and you re-examine your childhood and like fuck I don't know man I gotta tell you I've done that edibles on planes a few times one time to somebody like you said don't want to carry on a plane have a little nibble before Chicago to LaGuardia I land and oh my god please <laughs> Somebody get me home here, you know. <laughs> On the other hand, another time I'm thinking of flying to Europe, I'm thinking, God, this stuff knocks me out all the time. Why don't I just do a little edible instead of a sleeping pill? Because I don't like some of the sleeping pill effects. It didn't work, man. It was kind of fidgety and it was mm. felt closed, and you know. Oh, so I've stayed away from the edibles on the planes of they're, late. They're very tricky because you you really have to be in the right state of mind, and you really you have to treat them with respect. And I think edibles have always been associated with silliness, and I think that's the trick that they've played on us. Like, ah, have a little pot brownie, man. We'll be, we'll get crazy. I know. It's, it's not silly. It's no, not I silly. Know. It's serious business. And the fact, I mean, it's funny because now with all the concerns about edibles, that, you know, somebody asked me the other day, what's the thing that most surprised me about the evolution of this whole marijuana reform thing in the last five, 10 years? And it's been the emergence of the edibles. I mm. didn't, if you had asked me five, 10 years ago, I would not have anticipated that edibles and drinks and oils would be playing such a major role in legal marijuana. Oh, right? yeah. Well, and the vapor pens too? Vape pens, but at least those are more... The Vape pens I might have seen because of the anti-smoking stuff coming in and the mm -hmm. e-cigarettes coming along. But the edible stuff and the gummy bears and the chocolates and all this sort of stuff. Breath strips? I, breath. Have you had one of those? No. Oh, oh no. good. Don't ever eat a full one. Is that right? Yeah, you got to break them up, man. Yeah. You got to yeah. break them up. They're too yeah. strong. Me and Tommy Segura, who's a good friend of mine, stand-up comedian, we tore one in half and ate it on a plane. We were doing some gigs in Florida. Popped it on the way to, uh, it was a nighttime flight, a red eye. 
and uh, we landed, and we both turned and looked at each other, and go, we were like, "How terrifying was that? Fucking terrifying! What's what was in that? Like, yeah. I don't know." Well, I got to tell you, much. dealing from this from a policy perspective, I mean, we're doing everything we can to have some responsible regulation in this area. Mm. You need better testing. You need to know that if you're buying a cookie, the stuff's going to be evenly distributed. Mm-hmm. Buying a chocolate bar, evenly distributed. People got to figure out their dose. You know, mm-hmm. I found for me, like right now, I know about seven milligrams. It's just kind of a nice. You know, to seven, a seven, a relatively low dose. That's really and hard to find. Usually, the low well, is twenty. No, you, well, what I'll do is I'll get a candy bar that's broken up into bits of ten, and I'll split it, you know, a little more than half or something like that. So that's like a calm, mellow. It's calm, easy high. nice to kick back, relax, mm-hmm. maybe go for a swim, go for a massage, maybe mm-hmm. go to a movie. I mean, it's that level, yeah. right? And the higher level can be good too, but it's got the risk of knocking me on my ass. The higher level to me is like this. It's a, a potential. Like, like a a treasure hunt, maybe mm-hmm. a treasure hunt for ideas or an exploration of maybe there's something I missed. You know, maybe like because I'm always trying to like dig down into my psyche and find out what I don't like about me or what I need to improve or what I need mm-hmm. to work on more or what 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 aspect of my career or my life I need to be putting more attention to. And usually the pot sort of lets me know about that. And the pot in the tank, that's my big exploratory journey. You eat a cookie, get in the tank and then get out and go, OK, I got to go to work. That's interesting for me. Pot sometimes does that, but it's unpredictable when it's going to work that way. Yeah. You know, and then I grab the opportunity. I may be sitting at a concert and had an edible or smoke, and all of a sudden, like my brain's flying and yeah. I'm writing stuff down. And, you know, listen to music. But but for me, the thing about the mushrooms, which I don't like to do, it also when you get older, it takes more of a toll. You don't recoup. You know, like I do mushrooms, and the next day it's like um, I'm burnt out. Really? Um, oh yeah, yeah. Now that wasn't true when I was in my 20s, early 30s, but I'm in my 50s now. You know. And do you see, ever try 5-HTP? And when you come back from it, <laughs> so I was just talking with somebody about that this morning. Uh, I don't think I have tried that. That's yet. a big one because and for mushrooms or MDMA. Well, for either one, but much more so for MDMA than for mushrooms because that's a direct effect. That's exactly what it's doing. But mushrooms has a toll on it as well. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people that have done the heavy mushroom trips have found success in taking um, L-tryptophan and 5-HTP afterwards. L-tryptophan actually converts to 5-HTP and 5-HTP converts to serotonin. And you can get those over the counter, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We actually, I have sell, so I'll get you some. Do we have any new mood here? Do we have any of that stuff? We have some. We'll, we'll get you some. Yeah. Oh, this, yeah, this, this is it right here. Yeah. Oh no, no. This is. Uh, uh, thank you. Thank yeah, you. that's that's a combination of 5-HTP and L-tryptophan, and all that stuff does is it gives your brain the building blocks mm-hmm. to produce human neurotransmitters. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what it does. It gives mm-hmm. your brain the building blocks to produce that stuff to produce serotonin. Well, I have to say, one of my great regrets is that MDMA. You know, I uh, first did it, uh, I guess, in the early 90s when I was in my early 30s, and. And I loved it, you know, and did it both, you know, for going to occasional rave or with my wife at the time or friends. But I have to say now, it just doesn't seem to work for me as well anymore. That the downside begins to exceed the upside. And it's a bummer. I've only done it once. And like, the downside was so strong. The upside was amazing. I was, I mean, I'd done too much. I, t- I took two tabs, and um, uh, the, the the experience was beautiful, and it taught me so much about insecurity, so much about like the way I behave and the way people behave and interact with each other. How much of it is just based on insecurity? Mm-hmm. You know, it was, it was weird. 
like uh, this sounds gay as fuck, but it, this is exactly what happened. Me and this dude were on a couch and we were holding hands and we were talking about how good it feels to just hold hands. Then we weren't scared to like hold hands with another dude. It was totally non-sexual. So it's, it's so funny you say that story because I remember one time with a group of close <laughs> friends and some of these friends are like leading academics and in drug policy, drug studies, and I mean major figures. And we'd become good friends and we would occasionally get together and do you know do an MDMA thing like once a year. And I just remember one of my friends who's a distinguished professor, him just, we were, four of us were sitting on the couch and he just lay down on top of our knees and we all just put our hands on him. And it was so <laughs> loving, so wonderful. So I know what you're talking about. And it's non-sexual. It's a weird thing. The MDMA, apparently they say, uh, I've never tried, I said I only did it once. But people say that you, it's really hard to have sex when you're on it. Right. Well, the thing is, it's it's not the sex drug; it's a hug drug. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing, and it's it's you know something you can't get aroused on it, but it's you know at some point the I that's been my experience. You can get aroused mm -hmm. and all that sort of stuff, but at some point the energy is shifting towards more hug energy, empathic, mm -hmm. loving energy. You know, whereas for example, psychedelics and sometimes can go in a highly sexual direction. Yeah. Well, that was the argument that McKenna had for mushrooms being the catalyst for human evolution. Mm -hmm. Do you ever you know? about all that? Do you know McKenna's theories? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I kind of like the theory, the notion of hunter-gatherers and hunter-gatherers who consumed, you know, psilocybic mushrooms or whatever were the ones who were going to be better at whether it was warfare or mm -hmm. hunting or a whole range of other things. So it's intriguing. And, and Terrence was a remarkable speaker. Yeah, he was uh, the best speaker. He was so fascinating and yeah. so unique. I only met him a few times, but one of the last times he called me up because uh, I think he was supposed to speak at UCLA or USC. And at the last moment, they were going to prohibit him from speaking or whoever was loaning them the hall or something like that. And so he just called me up and I called the local ACLU and they got on it and we solved the problem. Wow, that's yeah. great. That's yeah. beautiful. So yeah. you led to one of Terrence's speeches. That's I think great. so, yeah. And his brother, Dennis McKenna, he and I were both at the first World Ayahuasca Congress in mm. Ibiza last October. And that was something. I mean, here you have, and it was odd that it was in Ibiza because Ibiza is right, the party island and ayahuasca is not a party drug. It's a serious thing. But there were about a thousand people in this conference hall in Ibiza, you had leading academic scientists like Dennis McKenna. You had shamans, both New Age shamans and traditional shamans from Latin, from Latin America. You had people who were. There was a guy, Polish guy, who would do a occasional ayahuasca ceremony where he would invite musicians who would then make music together under the influence of ayahuasca. And then I was invited because the organizers wanted to know how does ayahuasca connect to broader drug policy reform. So that was quite a gathering. Dennis is amazing. I love that guy. I've had him on a few times now and had some beautiful conversations with them. It's just, I'm always like, I can't believe I'm sitting here talking to Dennis McKenna. He's, mm -hmm. he's psychedelic royalty. Yeah. Yeah. You know? No, he, he really is. And the stuff, you know, it's funny. I've never gone on one of those ayahuasca tours down in South. Have you ever done that? The no. Thing down? Mm -hmm. You know, I'm tempted occasionally. What? I hate bugs. <laughs> Apparently Dennis does too. So he does them in a different part of Peru where it's, right? it's a, a not, it's a dry climate. It's not a moist jungle climate. Yeah. He's like, you don't have to go to the jungle. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, why go to the jungle? It's fucking mosquitoes, man. You get eaten alive. But no. for some people, it's like part of the beauty of the journey. It's like the suffering of dealing with the bugs and the, like uh, my friend Amber got bit on the leg by a spider and her whole fucking leg turned black, like like or uh, black and blue rather. It's giant, no, huge. Yeah, yeah. Some people doing these things out in the forest and they, you know, they start walking off in the middle of the ceremony. Nobody ever finds them again. Yeah, you know, you yeah, know they so, get eaten yeah. up by jaguars. Yeah, happens. no, I was perfectly happy to do my first ayahuasca experience in Santa Barbara, California. <laughs> That's perfect. Yeah, no bugs. That's no the bugs. <laughs> just rich people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Just, exactly. The only thing but, that's a horror is the plastic surgery around you. That's true.
true, yeah. But I'll tell you, the ayahuasca thing too, Joe, it, it reminds me, when you read about the the emergence of LSD and mescaline in the 50s and the guys who went around dosing people, you know, Cary Grant, famous actors, politicians. Cary Grant used to dose oh, people? Car- no, he didn't dose people, but he became an enthusiast. Oh. Who was that famous, uh, who was, she was a famous female swimmer who then was in movies, I forget her name. Um, but you know, you had famous people doing it, Life Magazine writing about it. And I think ayahuasca is almost a bigger version of that right now. You're having ayahuasca ceremonies happening all around the world. Mm. I mean, not just the U.S. or North America and South America, but in Europe, Asia. I mean, it's extraordinary. And so many people describing profound and transformative experiences. And it's mm. not totally without risk, but the benefit-risk ratio is so enormous. Well, what that... is the risk, though? Well, There's I think... no physical risk. The risk, the risk is only psychological. And if you're a psychologically unstable person, you really shouldn't be doing anything to perturb your consciousness. If you have issues with psychosis or you're bipolar or, you, you know, there's a lot of people that have like That's legit. Right. The other thing with powerful psychedelics is if you have a cardiovascular risk because mm. you're, you're, you're so stimulated. Like, so stimulated. Yeah. And, and then the thing is because ayahuasca, you know, every shaman makes the batch a different way. So you're not exactly sure what's in that stuff. Mm-hmm. And then there's the thing about making sure the person's safe while they're under the influence. You know, it's like the horrible story that happened with that guy in Colorado with the edible, right, who had never done him before and he jumps off a balcony or the horrible stories about people doing LSD and thinking they can fly. So, you know, you know, know, Bill Hicks joke on that. What's it? Yeah. Yeah, Bill Hicks. What a tragedy. Someone jumped out. He goes, what an idiot. Because if he thought he could fly, why didn't he take off from the ground first? And you had this whole bit about it, about Uh, young man on acid. It was a a bit about a positive drug story. Yeah. And his thing was like, all the media ever tells you about is these negative drug stories about a guy jumped off the roof. Well, I mean, it's part of what's, look, as marijuana is becoming more legalized in our society and hopefully around the world, and as we move forward on the psychedelics to begin to, you know, open them up as well, and maybe, and then you have all the new psychoactive substances and some of the synthetics, which may have, you know, some upsides to them, but the key is going to be putting out a norm out there mm-hmm. about what it means to use it safe. I mean, for example, get it, doing mushrooms or LSD and going to a concert with 50,000 people around or 10,000 people around, generally not a good idea, you know? <laughs> Unless they're also on LSD and you know them all. <laughs> that's true. That's true. That might work okay. but Maybe. But, but that's the scary thing. Yeah. It's like people think, oh, let's go do this as a party drug. And all of a sudden, all sorts of information overload and yeah. you're losing perspective and all this sort of stuff. And people don't know what's going on. Or you see going to Burning Man, right? And I remember meeting a guy who had done some weird drug and, and he had just totally flipped out. He thought an animal was trying to eat him alive, right, while he was flipping out. And fortunately, you know, Rick Doblin, the guys at MAPS had set up these kind of, you know, safety zones. And so they were able to get this guy away from the cops because the cops were going to shackle him, put him on a helicopter and take him to a jail, which could have been horrible. And instead, they gave him to Rick and Rick was able to talk this guy down and, you know, do it. But we have to be aware that when when people are taking these powerful mind-altering substances, which can have these wonderful things as you and I have experienced, we got to be aware that there are people who are not as stable as they Mm -hmm. think they are, people who have deep-seated shit going on and they don't know what's buried that's going to come flying out mm. people don't understand that yes yeah, if you're going to jump jump from the first floor not the fifth floor so we got to make sure because the other <laughs> don't even jump from the first floor no jump kidding. from the ground jump from the ground exactly yeah. you know but that it's going to be so key because i mean look just to shift away from the silos for a second one of the issues we're working on big time is trying to reduce the number of people dying from overdoses involving either heroin or pharmaceutical opiates so last couple of years more people have died of an accidental overdose involving heroin or other pharmaceuticals than in a car accident. 
it's the number one cause of accidental death in America today, wow. right? I mean, it's absolutely crazy stuff, right? And in fact, when we say overdoses suggest you took too much, most of what are overdoses actually are drug combinations. They're typically doing this opiate, your pharmaceutical opiate, oxycodone, whatever it might be, might even be prescribed to you, with booze or with benzos, Valium-type drugs, right? So what we're trying to do is to put out there the notion that don't, if you're doing opiates, don't combine it with booze. Don't combine it with tranquilizers. There's a miracle drug called naloxone, and we're trying to make that stuff as widely available. It reverses the, it's like an antidote for an overdose. Make it available. We're passing 911 Good Samaritan laws, so if people are around and, and a buddy of theirs overdoses, they don't just flip out. They call 911 right away the way they would a heart attack. So, you know, it's true with the psychedelics and marijuana, but even with the drugs that we see as less elevated in a way, but that huge numbers of people are using, like the opiates, it's really important that we become more and more of a society that understands the notion that we need to make it safer to use these drugs, right? We got to keep people from getting hurt the way that people get hurt. Well, we had a guy on here yesterday, um, uh, his two guys, uh, Chris and Mark Bell, uh, who uh, they were a part of a, a documentary called Bigger, Stronger, Faster, which was about steroids. And now they have a new one called Prescription Thugs, and it's mm -hmm. all about uh, the, the opiate pill industry and how many people die from it and how many people are addicted to it. And the numbers, I wasn't prepared for the numbers. When we, we had them on and we started exploring the numbers, they were talking about, this is from 2010, there was 8.7 million people abusing these pills on, on a daily basis in this country. Yeah. I mean, that's a staggering well, number. I mean, those, no, nobody really knows the number, right? Because right. what it means to abuse it and whether it is abuse. But, it, you know, 20 years ago, you had a massive problem of the under-treatment of pain, right? That people were so flipped out about using opioids that people who were terminally ill, children who were terrible burn victims, people going through a traumatic, you know, post-operative, you know, uh, recovery from surgery and stuff like that, were not having their pain treated. And the failure to treat pain appropriately can shorten people's lives, lead to major depression lead to other drug taking and all that sort of stuff. So over the 90s, early 2000s, we began to solve that problem. So now it's opiates are used much more correctly. But then what happened is that we, what we really have in America is an epidemic of chronic pain, right? Really? Lower, lower back pain, sciatica, uh, chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia, carpal tunnel. Mm -hmm. I mean, the Tens of millions of Americans, maybe close to 50 or 100 million Americans, go through some chronic pain episode during the course of every year or two, whatever it might be. And it turns out that for many people going through dealing with chronic pain, opioids don't work that well. Right? They just don't work. They're appropriate for sort of severe pain, and they're appropriate for some chronic pain patients. So what happens is people start taking this stuff. They have chronic pain. And they're taking opioids, and the doctor's giving the opioids, and then they're building up tolerance. So they're taking higher doses, which is building the risk, right? And then maybe they're combining it with like a Valium-type drug to reduce their anxiety, or maybe they're taking alcohol because that makes them feel better. And then what happens is at some point your heart, you know, your breathing stops, right? And so what we need to do, that, that over-prescription of these opioids, it's not just by physicians who are criminals and are doing these things for money. It's not just black market marketeering of this stuff. It's also a lot of people just trying to help doc, good meaning doctors trying to help people who are suffering with pain by giving them the opioids they think they want and need when it turns out that's probably not the best way to deal with it. Well, there's an issue that people have with pain that comes from work, from sitting down all day. There's an issue that people have from not taking their body 
as important or as taking the health of their body as significantly as they should, I think that there's a lot of people that just don't they don't know the consequences of sitting at a desk with bad posture all the time. Like these chairs that you're sitting in, these things are special ergonomic chairs that make you kind of support your body weight up straight. They're called Capisco chairs mm -hmm. from this company called Ergo Depot. But before I got these, I sat in regular office chairs. At the end of every episode, I would, my fucking back, the middle of my back would be killing me. And this eliminated them. Mm -hmm. Ergonomic chairs are very important. Sometimes people like to sit on those balance balls. That's important. But what's Although also this, important is taking care of your health and fitness, mm -hmm. taking care of your body, like yoga. Yo if, if more people did yoga, they, you would have way less back pain, way less joint pain, way less stress, but they don't have the time. And, or if they do have the time, they choose to have, do that time to, to go get drunk. Or, or they're like the, me. And I've had more people tell me to take up yoga than any other piece of advice in my entire life, and I just can't get into it. You why know? Can't now, you, have you tried uh, it? Yeah, I've tried it many times, you know, and I just, I just, now, now you know, I'm sitting, you know what, I realize I'm in your beautiful ergonomic chair here, Joe, mm -hmm. but I'm slouching. So now I'm going to sit up straight, <laughs> let me readjust the mic here, you know, and then I'll feel better, I'll breathe better, you know. It's a, I got to tell you something. Though. But what do you mean by you can't get into it? I just don't enjoy it. You're not supposed but to enjoy I, it. By the way, I it will, sucks. I will say it's an hour and a half of yeah, suck. Yeah, but you know, other parts of life suck. Why don't I do that? You know, I but will the, say the this. idea is that there's a benefit for that suck. One of the things I love about weed is I love to stretch when I do weed. Mm -hmm. I get into my body, you know, and that's the thing. It's just whether it's swimming, but the only time I like feeling that, you know, stretching my, I hate, I hate stretching my hands, mm -hmm. but when I'm high, it yeah. feel good. You well, know? you know, that's what McKenna believed that yoga was in the first place. Yoga said, uh, McKenna had this one lecture that was talking about uh, yogis and that the real secret about sadhus is that they're high as fuck. And what yoga really is, is it's almost like a how-to manual on how to properly use cannabis and that they believe that eating cannabis especially or smoking hash and then going into these yoga poses would they would achieve these higher states of consciousness and so they would pass this down from generation to generation and the Indian in India rather the Hindus have a long history of both eating hash and smoking hash and he believed that that was the dirty secret of yoga the yoga was really all about how to use cannabis correctly which well, is why it feels so good to stretch when you're high I'll tell you a few things about that one is I think it was the San Francisco Chronicle just last month or so had a piece about yoga where they basically asked people to smoke before they go and do the yoga class the other thing is have you seen this and what book? Did they say what was you know, the result I mean I mean people it's the same thing so many people are like me they get more into their body, right? That marijuana helps in that respect, you know? The other thing is, have you seen this book that was just reissued called Zigzag Zen? No. You should have this guy on, Alan, Alan um, uh, Bediner. And, uh, Zigzag Zen. Zigzag Zen. And the painter, you know Alex Gray is? the, sure, the guy. good friend so, of mine. Okay, okay. Alex is the one who did the artwork for it, and Alan Bediner did the writing. And I, as I recall, what the book is about is he was struck by all of these kind of Zen spiritual leaders in America, for whom their psychedelics experience in their younger years was pivotal to their evolution and to their becoming a master of some type of meditation, but who would not talk about it, right? And it's, so, and it's very interesting because, you know, there's also, you have in some of these, you know, spiritual worlds, whatever, that you, they're looking down on the use of marijuana or psychedelics, that you should keep your body as a sacred vessel and keep it free from these substances. But in fact, you see a lot of evidence that these things go really well together. Well, the issue is legality and also most of these people have a 
actual jobs. And when you have an actual job and you start talking about drugs, people look at you like you're some sort of a fucking crazy person. If you work as an, an insurance company and you say, well, on the weekend, you know what I did this weekend? I smoked DMT with my friends and I experienced God. They're like, what the fuck is wrong with Ethan? I know. This crazy asshole. Like, and then you get passed up for job promotions. They think you're a loose cannon. It, it can be detrimental to your interest or your family, especially if you have children. There's a lot of people that have children that don't like to talk about drugs or even admit they smoke pot anymore. Oh. I've experienced that resistance. All, all over the place. Or what about the, what, you know, if, if your kids are inviting their friends over and then you have to worry about that your kids' friends will tell their parents, mm. oh, so-and-so's parents, you know, smoke weed or whatever. And then all of a sudden you have the neighbors and the fellow parents, you know, getting all worked up about that or telling their kids they can't go over. Well, so. th listen, I go through that. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's me. You know, look, I have pot tattooed on my body. You know, I have a DMT molecule on my left arm. It's, it's pretty well known that I'm into drugs. I like them. I think they're awesome, mm -hmm. you know, but I'm healthy as fuck. And, uh, and, I'm, you, I'm and not... you're also an independent operator, as am I, but it's so true. I got to tell you, the, in my, the emails I get from people who have, you know, solid employees for 20 years, and then a drug test popped out, and they were totally fine at work. It's just because they got high on the weekend, and they lose their job after 20 years. Exactly. I mean, that sort of stuff that's going on. I think, by the way, John Oliver may be doing something on this issue soon. So. Well, it's a nonsense issue. The idea that you can get high on Friday and lose your job on Monday. How come you can get drunk all weekend and show up on Monday? Monday and be okay. fine. Well, I'll tell you something, but now here's, the, I'll give you a, a policy dilemma. So back in 2010, the ballot initiative in California legalized marijuana. Richard Lee, the fellow who was driving that, and we agreed, we put in a provision there that basically said people could not be fired for testing positive for marijuana so long as they were totally competent at work, not high at work. And there's, we wanted to protect people who were having a joint in the evening or on the weekend, right? Right. The Chamber of Commerce flipped out. Right. And the problem is, is you don't want to provoke some very powerful bears and all this sort of stuff. So now when we're drafting these initiatives around the country for 2016 and beyond, what we find is we do not include a clause protecting people because we know the one thing that but might that's... get the Chamber of Commerce to all flip out, you know, and to basically defeat the initiative. And then what you basically hope is that as marijuana becomes more legalized, you can revisit it. Is, and I think that's what's happening. Mm -hmm. I, I haven't looked at as yet in Oregon and Washington, but my guess is that the number of employers who are drug testing for marijuana is decreasing, right? I mean, look, it's always been a bad way to determine performance, right? Because we know marijuana stays in the system. You know, the craziness of drug testing. If you want to get totally bombed on a Friday night and be okay at work Monday morning in terms of drug testing, don't smoke a joint, right? Alcohol and cocaine is the right combination for you. That's a crazy message to send with drug testing. Right? Yeah, so, because yeah. cocaine's out of your system in it's like 24 system. hours Exactly, or so. and the alcohol, same thing. It's stupid. You know, it's it's really stupid and these stereotypes are ridiculous. These stereotypes that pot smokers are dumb and lazy and you know, they 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 insult me, you know. It, it brought, really drives me nuts and I I hate having to defend it because it's it's you're defending just these ignorant stereotypes that were propagated by reefer madness. I mean, that was like we really started it all off and the effectiveness of the propaganda that Hearst Publications put out in the 1930s, it's Amazing how well, well that worked almost a hundred years so later. You know what else it is? And I used to make this analogy more often than I do today, but I'd say, you know something? In America, 50 years ago, everybody knew a gay person. They just didn't know they knew a gay person. 
right? And mm. therefore, their image of who was gay was determined by what they saw in the media. Somebody getting arrested in a men's room or somebody flamboyantly walking down Christopher Street in New York City or people who are very, very effeminate, right? Now, of course, everybody knows a gay person, right? It could be their cousin or their employer. Or the employer. You know, it's all around the place. And therefore, our image of who is the gay person, right, has become, we don't have any associations. It's just the person who seems effeminate or just the person doing odd stuff. Well, similarly with marijuana, everybody in America knows not just a marijuana user, but a responsible marijuana user. The problem is they don't know they know them. Therefore, who's their image of the person who uses marijuana user? They think of that high school dropout or the kid with, you know, you know, Hempley's in his blonde dreadlocks who's a troublemaker at school. They think of their friend's kid who got in trouble with drugs. That's who they think of. Now, mind you, the kid who just got straight A's and is going to an Ivy League school or to UC Berkeley or Stanford or whatever, and who's also smoking weed, that kid's being more discreet, and nobody knows he's doing weed except his friends. So we have a biased image of who, in fact, the marijuana user has been in America. Now, as it becomes more legalized, as people become more open and out with it, I've been struck at all the people I've known for many years who are finally saying to me and admitting to me that they've been using marijuana or psychedelics regularly for a long time. Now we're seeing that thing begin to shift in our society the same way we saw it happening with gay people in this country. I think you're right, and I think I've seen a, a giant shift just within the last 15 or so years. You know, um, I started smoking pot when I was 30. I'm 48 now, so I've been smoking pot for 18 years. And before I smoked pot, I thought it was for losers. I really did. I got lucky. I met my friend Eddie Bravo, and he is uh, this really creative musician and explained to me that it helps him, like, write music and create music. And he's this interesting guy that I used to do jujitsu with. Mm -hmm. That's the other, also a weird thing about uh, martial arts. A tremendous amount of UFC fighters smoke pot. I mean, a massive amount. Where it's a huge issue for them with when involving drug tests. You know, that they have to stop smoking weed for the last four weeks or so in order to pass drug tests. When I say, I mean, more than, more than don't. More more UFC fighters smoke pot than don't smoke Same pot. Same thing true of the NBA. Yeah. Oh, well, the Possibly NBA, it's giant. The NFL. I had I met a football player, a retired football player, Marvin Washington, at the end of last year. And he was, you know, he's been involved, getting involved in the medical marijuana thing, but he's really brilliant guy, guy, and he cares about the broader policy issues. We landed up drafting with him and three other, you know, Pro Bowl, you know, uh, you know, Pro Bowl uh, winners, um, basically a public letter calling on the NFL to change its marijuana testing policy to admit that marijuana has medical value, that it's safer for many players, that when it comes to dealing with concussion injury, that marijuana may actually have a therapeutic dimension to it. Well, not just may does, does without a does. doubt. So the evidence there. I was also encouraged. Anti-inflammatory properties of it. Do you see the U.S. the International Olympics Committee? What they've done now is I think they've changed the level or when they test mm -hmm. for marijuana. So they basically are saying, if you, haven't if you haven't used marijuana, you know, within the 24 hours before a match, you're not our concern anymore. Right. So you see an evolution happening, and at different rates in different types of professional sports. You do, and it's 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 so important. It really is because otherwise, you're basing your laws and your the, the way you punish people on ignorance. Mm -hmm. It's just it's foolishness, and yeah. the idea behind it is fool. What are you doing? Yeah, I mean, it came out. I mean, part of this was what came out of the drug war ideology, right? Drug yeah. testing sweeps into American society in the Ronald Reagan days in the mid-'80s. Drug war goes crazy in the late-'80s. Everybody's feeling you have to drug test. Most major corporations are drug testing. So we just got caught up in that. You know, being in a, a, a professor at Princeton in the late-'80s, early-'90s, 
And I saw the kids, like, they knew they were going to be applying for jobs where you needed to be drug tested. And it just began to shape the whole way they thought about this sort of stuff. Yeah, it's just so unfortunate because it doesn't make you a bad person. It doesn't make you a lazy person. These are what's imp what, what the thoughts that are implied in testing people. The idea is like, hey, I am your employer. I don't want you fucking up on the weekend and then coming into work on Monday all scrambled. Yeah. But there's no evidence of that at all. Well, I would say this. I, I mean, and, and I because what I always want to do is to give the other side what I think might be true or might conform with their own experience. For some people, marijuana, smoking too much marijuana does make them lethargic. Well, at, For some if people, they smoke it at work. Well, sure. if, they smoke, if people, look, they, nobody wants kids waking and baking before they go to school, right? Some people can smoke marijuana 24-7. It's sort of medical, doesn't harm their workability. Other people, it's a problem. You know, it can be a motivating for some people. It, look, it's a drug, and that means that some people can use it in the wrong ways problematically. The problem is, and this is where we fundamentally agree, the large majority of people who use marijuana do so responsibly and are not having a problem with it. And there's a huge number of people who use marijuana in a way that actually enhances their life. And there are many of them who find it preferable to using pharmaceutical medications or alcohol or things like that. There are people, I know brilliant intellectuals and academics who have done some of their best work and come up with some of their best ideas under the influence of marijuana or psychedelics. So marijuana can be a huge positive in many people's life. It can be neither here nor there in some people. And for some people, it's a negative. Yeah, including Carl Sagan, who was right. a huge proponent of marijuana. I think that the people that have issues with marijuana have issues. And that's one of the things that's been sort of dusted under the rug. You're blaming it on marijuana. These people that smoke pot and it ruins their life. I mean, I had a joke about it where I was like, it's just because pot got there first. It could have been anything that fucked your life up. It's usually some sort of an underlying traumatic issue that you're trying to run away from or well, hide or cover up. Yeah. It's, I mean, the problem, of course, is when people in power hold that. I mean, I'll tell you, on both ends of the country, Governor Cuomo and Governor Brown, I don't know what their issue is with marijuana. Well, their issue is that there's, there's financial interests that are trying I, no, to lead them in the way of, I, of I, illegal... Uh, John, I don't think so. I actually think so. I've talked to both of them about it. Uh -huh. And I can see, and both of them are willing, I think both of them have been decent governors in other areas of, of their life. I think some of them have been okay on sort of rolling back some elements of the drug war. They're kind of mixed in that regard. But Cuomo just has this weird anti-marijuana thing I don't get. And Brown talked to him a, a few months ago at the same thing. Thing. And well, when you say weird, okay, well, let's be specific. Like, what it's you not political. For Cuomo being such a jerk on New York's medical marijuana law and trying to carve it down so only like five businesses can run this thing. I mean, all the stuff he did. It's got eight, medical marijuana supported by eighty percent of New Yorkers, right? There was no political reason for him to do that sort of stuff. But somehow, some weird anti-marijuana thing was in there. But then, and, hold on. But that doesn't seem like an anti-marijuana thing at all when you're talking about boiling it down to five businesses. It sounds it was, like a business interest. It was more, look, there may have been some of that there, but may I may have he, been. Well, that seems like the only motivation. There's, it seems to be there's no rational motivation other than financial. And in, in I giving, don't know because in the end there was a whole competitive process for who got the five licenses. It's hard to show whether the governor's friends. We haven't seen any evidence yet that it was governor's buddies who benefited. I think there was something that he felt a need to be hyper controlling in this area. I think sometimes people. Yeah, but go he's through, not ignorant. He's got to know the financial. Massive profit margin, the, the massive uh, the, the possibility for profit that these people are going to experience. That does, he's not ignorant. He's got to know that you're talking about something in Colorado that just the tax revenue alone has been a hundred million. But that's a good reason for him to have done the right thing. 
right? The question is, why does a guy like that try to sabotage a good bill and put in a bad bill in place? Well, why what's your thought? Guy, I, you know, I don't know. I, all I know is something, sometimes you think it could be that something involving a friend of theirs, a kid of theirs, their own personal experience. I think it's something personal oftentimes. And with Jerry Brown, once, I've, I've heard rumors with both governors that they used to smoke. I've never heard I've other people say, oh, no, these guys Jerry are, Brown in California didn't used to smoke? That would be knows? more shocking than he did. Who knows? But, I mean, I got to tell you, Jerry, high right you now. talk to Jerry, I don't know, Jerry thinks, oh, marijuana is the downfall of American civilization, right? I mean, but there's a part of it that, that actually, says? he actually, he does say that publicly and privately. And he yeah. actually seems to almost believe that at times. And I think the other part of his brain is smart enough to know it's ridiculous. But there's a lot of people who have had a negative encounter with marijuana. They've had a kid who started smoking weed and waking and baking and went in and got into bigger trouble with other drugs. And I think they just got like, this is bad. This is bad. Or there are people who've had experience problems with alcohol in their family and they think if alcohol was that bad, weed's going to be even worse. I think there's still that irrational stuff driven oftentimes by knowing somebody or knowing of somebody where they associate marijuana with bad things having happened to that person. I think Jerry, Brown, he's, Jerry Brown's got a bigger problem in that no one even knows he's the governor. The guy became the governor of California after Arnold Schwarzenegger, and no one paid any attention. Like, literally, no one even knows he's the governor. You never fucking hear Governor Jerry Brown. Like, you said that, and I had to—and I know. And I, yeah, you said that, and I go, oh, yeah, he's the governor. Oh, yeah, I forgot. Sometimes that's a good sign. Well, he used to be the governor a long time ago. Everybody knows Remember Christie's when he was the governor of New Jersey, and, you know, he ain't so popular anymore. But he was a governor, and he was a, an interesting candidate for president yeah. in the 1980s, right? Was it 80s or 90s? 80s or 92, maybe. What year was it? I don't know. Might what, what doesn't matter. Might have been 92, the year that Clinton uh, beat everybody else yeah. off. Yeah, it was a long-ass time ago, and, you know, they would call him Moonbeam, Governor Moonbeam, and they were making fun of him. But he had some unique ideas when it came to running for president. I and, actually thought he was a really interesting candidate back yeah. then. I remember that. I remember that. And I actually, I mean, from New York, you know, it's funny. When I bumped in on a plane, we're chatting, and then we're making chit-chat as the plane lands, and he goes, so how's that, how's that New York governor of yours doing, Cuomo? And I say he's kind of like you. He's a pretty good governor overall, but he stinks on the things that matter when it comes to drug policy. <laughs> you know? What and actually, say? not all those did things. Did you say that to his face? I said it to his face. Were he you laughed. ready to get hit? No, he laughed. He laughed. He laughed? He, let's say he, didn't, he smiled. He you smiled. Know? Yeah, yeah. No comment, though? No, I got to tell you, Joe, you want to see something ugly? Go on YouTube and type in the words rude debate or type in the words really rude debate. Yeah. And what pops up is me and Jerry Brown pummeling one another on Amy Goodman's Democracy Now! show in 2008 when we had a ballot initiative that would have been the biggest prison reform ballot initiative in the history of America. And Jerry Brown was then the attorney. Attorney General, and he did everything he could to kill it. And so we just went at it one day. About what? what, what what's his rationalization? I think at that point he wanted to run for governor. He wanted to have the prison guards behind him. The prison guards union was making very clear that if they were going to be sport, he had to block this. They got every former governor and governor governor and gubernatorial candidates to get up and stand up against this. I got to tell you, if California had passed that ballot initiative, Prop 5, back in 2008, it would have solved a big part of the prison problem in this state at that time. That seems like I hear stuff like that. I, I feel like it's treasonous. Oh. I really do. I, when I feel like a guy is doing for his own benefit, trying to block something that would be beneficial to people, especially recognizing that we have a huge issue with the prison industrial complex in this country and the idea that we had privatized prisons in the first place, the idea that someone's profiting off of putting people in jail and the idea that they're actively lobbying to make sure that there's more laws in place that are going to incarcerate people so that they can make more money. The idea that that's illegal, is it, that, that drives me up a it, fucking wall. The, I got to tell you. 
with the, between the prison guards union on the one hand and the private mm. prison corporations on the other. And police I mean, unions. Guys, I mean, just thank God they hate one another, the prison guards unions and the private prison corporations, because those guys have just been venal in that regard. It's just money, man. It's just money. Whenever well, you get money involved in anything, when it, you get money involved in pharmaceutical industries, when you get money involved in this the marijuana thing with these five mm -hmm. different corporations that are going to control all the pot... Money. It's fucking money. My it people trying to get more money. It is. But the basic idea, Joe, where you are saying before that, that you have a prison guards union that needs to keep the prisons full in order to pad their overtime pay. Mm -hmm. Sick. You know? Or that you have a prison corporations that are making money if more people get incarcerated and they'll end up becoming advocates for laws that lock up more people or advocates for opposing the reform of laws that are blocking up, blocking up too many people. Look, being a prison guard is a shitty job. What those dudes need to do is grow weed. I'll tell That's you this. That's what they should do. You want to know something interesting? That's a great job. Prison guards union did not oppose the marijuana legalization initiative in 2010. Really? Right? Yeah, and I think the reason is is a. I think there's two reasons. I, I, th I think one is marijuana prohibition sends a lot of people to local jails, but not that many to state prison. But the second reason is if you're a prison guard and you're living in the middle of God knows where, you know, California, surrounded by nothingness, what do you want to do when you get home from work? You want to get high. Exactly. You know. <laughs> in fact, I, I, my my guess is the prison guards union is like anybody else right now. They probably got members of their union who are medical marijuana patients and dealing with state laws that probably prohibit their using marijuana. Do you think that with uh, the the current climate that we have um, with uh, social media and the ability to distribute information, and then when outrageous laws are trying to get passed, you can you can tweet them and Facebook them, and people find out about them, and there's online petitions. Do you think that this this is lending itself more to transparency, and this transparency is beneficial to getting these more rational laws passed or more more rational ideas promoted? It's a great question. I think it leans in our favor. It's not the cure-all. Um, it means that the ability of young people to express themselves to legislators, the fact that more and more legislators pay attention to Facebook and Twitter and things like that, I think that's generally good for us. On the other hand, what I also know is that you know we now see, not just on legalization of marijuana, we see all this bipartisan consensus that there's too many people behind bars in America, that we need to reduce the prison population, that there's this horrible racism permeating our criminal justice system, that the incarceration of black people in this country is just an absolute humanitarian and social and racial nightmare, right? So we see all of that happening. We see bills being introduced to reducing in the prison population in the states and at congressional level. And then a new drug scare pops up. All of a sudden, it's flaca or basalt or synthetic cannabis or blah, blah, blah. And then there's this knee-jerk reaction, like, you know, criminalize first, ask questions later, right? And that's the thing we're still dealing with, that people will begin to come to their senses about more sensible policies, and then they get scared. And when they get scared, they do some things, do dumb things and pass bad laws. That's interesting because things like basalts only exist because what we would call, quote unquote, legitimate drugs are illegal. So you, you find a workaround. Why is most synthetic? What's the market for synthetic cannabis? Most of that has to do with the fact that people are worried about drug testing for marijuana. God, all and of it. You're not going to get all picked of it. up. Nobody would choose. If you had a choice between regular pot or synthetic, whatever the fuck it is, what is that stuff anyway? What is it, it even coming from? You know, it, it, it's either synthetic cannabinoids or maybe it's, there's also, I think, cathinone, which is the ingredient that's in cot, you know, the thing they chew, mm -hmm. they chew in uh, Africa. East Africa, well, East Africa and Yemen. But that's like a uh, amphetamine. It's a stimulant. I mean, it's sort of like you 
used the way that Indians chew coca in Bolivia and Peru, Colombia. So it's a, when it's ch- done in the ch- chewing the leaf, it's fairly innocuous. When you extract the chemical, you can then make it into something much more potent and much more problematic. Oh, see, I was under the impression that ch- even chewing the leaf had more of a, an amphetamine-like effect. It is. It's a, but same thing like chewing coca leaf, right? Chewing coca leaf re- re- releases a slow drip of cocaine into the system, but it's basically almost a healthy form of cocaine consumption. Yeah. Isn't that and, funny? Yeah. It's hilarious yeah. that the leaves itself, like chewing the leaves, like I have a friend who uh, was recently in Peru and they, they would all do it. They give, they give you like a bag of it and they were on these hikes and they would chew it. And I was like, what was it like? It's like, well, it's like coffee, but better. Yeah. Exactly. And it actually has like flavonoids in it and, you know, like vegetable proteins or, um, uh, you know, what what are the properties of vegetables that are healthy, like um, phytonutrients, like different, like it's actually good for you. You're chewing green vegetables. 20 years ago, the World Health Organization organized a global study of coca and cocaine. They had experts from 19 countries. And after this extensive survey, what they found were two things. One was that the vast majority of people who use cocaine, sniff cocaine, whatever, did not have a problem with it, were not addicted to it, even though there was obviously a minority who had a big problem. The second thing they found was that the chewing of coca leaf by the Indians probably had a net benefit from a health perspective for exactly the reasons you're talking about. There were vitamins in the leaves that that they, they were consuming. When you chew coca leaf during the day, you're consuming essentially the equivalent of a few lines of cocaine, which over the course of a day is like having a few cups of coffee in a way, right? And what they found is the only downside was that to release the cocaine from the coca leaf, you had to add a little lime, and the lime could hurt, I think, something in the cheek. The enamel in the teeth, Some, too, right? Something like that, yeah. There's an issue with people that chew coca leaves all the time. They have these rotten-looking teeth. Uh, yeah, that may be from the lime. I don't know. Mm. It may just be that they generally have bad hy- you know, teeth hygiene in those parts. Who right. knows? Right? It's just like people say about meth mouth and losing your teeth. Mm-hmm. That's not about methamphetamine per se. It's that methamphetamine um, sort of uh, you know, uh, reduces the moisture in your mouth. And so you have to take extra special care of your teeth if you're using amphetamine with any regularity. And most people know that people taking amphetamine aren't taking extra special care of anything. Well, the funny thing is this. If you look at the 10 to 20 million kids, teenagers, age boys in America taking Ritalin or these mm-hmm. other things so they can focus better in school. Some of them get being prescribed it appropriately, others not. That's essentially the same as amphetamine or methamphetamine. Right? Isn't that crazy? And, and the methamphetamine that people are smoking and getting in trouble with, if you take that in an oral form, like a pill, it's essentially indistinguishable from the Ritalin the kids are taking in schools. You know, I was reading an article on uh, sugar and the, the, um, the negative aspects of sugar, of processed sugar, and how much of it is in our diets and how much of it is in things that you don't even consider. And that's really essentially the same thing when you're talking about extracting it from fruits because everybody agrees that eating fruits is healthy. And that's, you know, I mean, when you're eating bananas and you're eating apples and oranges, what, why, why does it taste good? Well, you know... There's sugar in it, right, natural right, sugars. Right. But those natural sugars, when you get them in that form with the fiber, with the plant itself, with the vegetable itself, is actually good for you. Well, it's actually good, say, the same as the, the coca leaves. The three most powerful drugs known to humankind, sugar, fat, salt. Sugar, fat, salt. Sugar, sugar fat, fat, and salt, salt, yeah. And that the ability of the sort of food-producing corporations and their you know, science and their ability to produce products that kind of you know, hit that part of the brain in a mm. way that sort of is beyond your capacity. When they look at the explosion in obesity and, and people being overweight in America and many other parts of the world, part of that is about the parts ability of food-producing companies to produce products that hit that part of the brain. I remember yeah. uh, Chris Rock, he uh, at one point doing a routine, and he was talking about uh, Krispy Kreme donuts 
And he goes, I found the secret ingredient of Krispy Kreme donuts. Crack cocaine, right? But in point of fact, if you think about it, I remember walking past the Krispy Kreme donut outlet when they first opened up, and you could not walk past it without this part of your brain twitching. Right? In the same way that somebody who's addicted to drugs gets a twitch when all of a sudden you know, they smell or see that drug in place. So the power of those substances, their psychoactive properties, we're used to them. These are powerful drugs we know and love. But in point of fact, if you ask what's doing more harm to the health of Americans today, sugar, refined sugar, or cocaine or heroin, could well be refined sugar. Well, there's an article, like I said, that I was reading that was, they were making the argument that it's a toxin. They were saying essentially sugar is a very common toxin that mm -hmm. people consume. But as you say, when it's consumed in natural forms, yeah. or for that matter, consumed in moderation, no big deal. But when you're taking large amounts, we see all the you know, diabetes in our and drinks and... Yeah. Yeah, I mean, just the, what you get in a glass of Coca-Cola, that's way more sugar than you're supposed to have in your day. Yeah. And it's in a Coke, I one know. Coke. And how many people have three, four Cokes throughout the day? And you see these people with their guts and, the, you know, they have all these issues with their body and your face is fucking fat. Like, what is that? Well, that's, you're taking in too much sugar, way too much. Yeah. You look at people from the early 1900s, what they looked like. I mean, obviously a lot of that is refrigeration. They didn't have as much food. People were much smaller then because they weren't, it was literally malnutrition. It was a common aspect. We're, we've gone completely the other way. Now we have enormous human beings. People are way bigger than ever. The It's a Small World ride in Disneyland had to be, they had to carve their trench deeper. They had to shut down the ride and carve their trench deeper. I was at Disneyland the other day, and I was with my daughters and their friend. So there was three little girls and me, but we couldn't sit in the same row because you can't have more than three people because they've got this thing. I'm like, I weigh more than the three of them do together. Like, this is crazy. Like, but I, I can't sit with them. When are the airlines going to adjust the width of the seats to accommodate this thing? No kidding, right? I travel a lot, and my one nightmare is being in, sitting next to somebody who's just kind of double size, and all of a sudden, part of them's in my seat. How know? about triple? Well, I mean, my friend Ralphie May is a stand-up comedian. I, I don't know if he flies first class, but even if he does, it's not first class enough. <laughs> He's 500 fucking pounds. I don't no. know how. I don't. I literally don't know how he does it. Although I did read that the country's turning the corner on this. That it's actually beginning to come down. Really? Yeah, yeah. And what the are, fat people are dying. I think the message is beginning to sink in. Really? Because I mean, you know, some of it is just a matter of just kind of being a little more conscious. You know, I mean, that whole supersize me stuff and all this kind of stuff. But once you get that big, it's way past that. That's lap band stuff. Well, Ralphie's had a couple of surgeries. I think he's had at least two of those yeah. lap band things and he blows through them. Yeah. You know, when you, uh, I, I know several people who've had that operation and broke whatever they fixed. Mm -hmm. You Is know, right? like they uh. shrink your stomach down and then you wind up having to go back and having another operation because you're stretching this tiny new stomach out too much. Because it be it's a psychological issue more than it is even a physical issue. It's the same thing when you're talking about people that abuse marijuana. Mm -hmm. Well, is it marijuana that's causing you to do that, or is it some underlying trauma that you're trying to, to, to smother with food, with sugar, with pot, with alcohol, with whatever the fuck it is? It seems like this psychological issue is as much of a factor as the physical addiction. And there what, can be no doubt there are physical addictions to food and sugar, but what is really going on there that's, that's overwhelming your life and making you indulge in it? To, you know, I got to say, what some people would say, and I think there's, there's really something to this, is that if we have an epidemic of anything in our country and maybe in many modern societies, it's pain. 
And it's a combination of, of its pain that sometimes manifests physically, but actually has to do with emotional pain and a sense of emptiness, and that food and psychoactive drugs are ways of filling this sort of stuff. I mean, I will tell you that we were talking about you know back pain and all this sort of stuff before and about the over overuse of opioids. Probably back in the early 90s, two things happened to me in short order that really affected, really powerfully affected my understanding of the mind-body relationship. The first one was doing MDMA for the first time, and that was sort of just kind of not just mind-opening, but opening of my consciousness around mind-body consciousness. But the second one was I had gone through three terrible episodes of back pain and sciatica. And, and I, you know, I got in, you know, MRIs and CAT scans, and I had herniated discs, the L4, L5, L5S1, the whole sort of thing. I was 48 hours away from being operated on, you know, and it was, operation, surgery was risky. And then I called a friend of mine, Andy Weil, Dr. Andrew Weil, who's a well-known integrative medicine guy, and he said, don't get the surgery. He said, go see this doctor, this guy named John Sarno at the NYU okay. Institute. Yeah, I know you. You know, talk about? Mm -hmm. And Sarno's theory was all of this stuff about herniated discs causing lower back pain and leg pain and radiating down, he goes, it's overwhelmingly bullshit. And his theory is that what's really going on is that it's, there's nothing physically wrong with your body, that there's underlying emotional anger, angst, feet, whatever it might be, and that your brain plays a trick by turning this emotional pain into physical pain. And it does that through a process of reducing the flow of blood around those nerves and muscles, et cetera. So without going on with this, this approach, Sarno approach, worked for me. I went from having this horrific pain to sort of coming out of it very quickly, being able to pick up my little daughter again, do the sports I used to do, and, and seeing myself as having a totally healthy back. Now, Sarno believes, right, that it's not just lower back pain and sciatica, right? And he uses, this is not just faith healing. This is, I mean, pretty, he, he's, his stuff is 90% supported by the science on this stuff, more than any other, any other theory of this stuff. But his thing is that a lot of pain is probably underlying emotional pain being turned into physical pain. And then we deal with that through food, through alcohol, through opiates, whatever it might be. And the reason why we land up getting in such trouble with drugs or with food is because we're trying to address this underlying almost existential pain, not by dealing with what's really causing it, but by trying to feed it things that we think will cover it over. Now, if Sarno's right, and my, I can't prove he's right, but based upon my own personal experience and my reading and my understanding of what's going on with drugs and food in this country, I think there's a lot there. Well, Sarno certainly has some really good points, but there are definitely some physical aspects to numbness and bulging discs impeding on nerves and atrophy, like atrophied limbs, which is a big problem with athletes that have nerve issues where bulging discs push down on nerves and it actually cuts the nerve supply to the, the muscles themselves and cause them to atrophy. That's real. That's yeah, all that real is shit. Real, so injuries are real. I think it's very important, though, that you, you recognize and, and that everybody hearing this recognizes that there are legitimate injuries that you have well, where, you, hold on, yeah. where your discs bulge out and impinge on nerves, and you need to get that treated. And there's a bunch of different ways to treat that that don't involve surgery. Yoga's one of them. Mm -hmm. Yoga's a really good one. Another one is decompression, because I've gone through all this. Mm -hmm. I've had some serious bulging disc injuries from jujitsu, and the, you know I've had MRIs that show this issue, and I've dealt with all of it without surgery. So it can be done, but I think it's important to see. There are people that have legitimate injuries. Yeah, no, no question about it. I think even Sarno would say there are people who have legitimate injuries. Who what did you? Sort of stuff. How did you hurt yours? Well, that's the whole thing. See, well, part of what Sarno points out is that now that we have MRIs and CAT scans being done commonly in our society, that if you take a hundred people, 
who are showing that they have herniated discs, mm-hmm. right? And you have 100 people who are showing no herniated discs, you'll have the same incidence of back pain. What he'll show is that the evidence that some, when you see that, it, that people assume there's a causal relationship between that MRI or CAT scan of the herniated disc and that lower back pain. Now, it could be that you've had a serious injury, right? You've been hit by a car, you've been in a sports injury, where there really is something going on there. But for many people, there's not a serious injury. There's some little thing that kind of triggers it, but then somehow it transforms in this. And then he looks at people who live in other societies where lower back pain and sciatica are not sort of accepted reasons for missing days of work or all this sort of stuff, and he finds much lower incidence of these pain, right? And the same thing, look at the carpal tunnel thing. What's that about? I mean, people have been t- using typewriters forever and ever and ever, and all of a sudden we have this epidemic of this thing. Right, and then uh, somehow that epidemic begins to fade and is replaced by something else. Well, let's hold on a second there, because carpal tunnel is real, and one of the reasons for carpal tunnel is repetitive stress, and repetitive stress causes inflammation, and inflammation locks up. When you're forced to sit at a keyboard in the same position over and over again and repeatedly do the same exercises, you absolutely do put undue stress on your hands and on your wrists. And if you're not prepared for it, if your body's not conditioned and you're you you're not a rigorous person, you can have real issues with it. My mom had to have. Some surgery for right. carpal tunnel. I mean, it's legitimate. But then raise the question. We had in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s, tens of millions of American, mostly women, who were typing eight hours a day, 12 hours a day. Well, first of all, right. you couldn't type as fast because there was the whole reason why the QWERTY method was invented to keep the keys from binding up because now we don't need that because you have your fingers just gently touch these things. You can yeah. do it really quickly. The other thing is diet. Um, there's a lot of inflam- inflammation promoting foods or, or, or foods rather that cause inflammation and that's just a fact sugar is a big one alcohol is a big one processed flours wheats like things that your your body has to break down which it breaks down to sugar like this is big thing in this country like gluten free this gluten free that G- what what it is Gluten, there are people that have gluten intolerances, celiac diseases, things along those lines. People have wheat intolerances. But I think what a lot of it is is just sugar. Because if you're eating bread, that bo- your body breaks that stuff down, processed flours, directly to sugar. Bread and pasta, all that that white stuff, that shit's not natural. You're breaking it down. Your body takes that bleached processed flour and it converts it directly to sugar and sugar causes inflammation. And that's mm-hmm. that's a huge issue with people. Yeah. I'm no expert on all that sort of stuff, Joe, so I don't know. I'll say that my takeaway from going through that pain experience and all the reading I've done in this thing is that when it comes to treating certain forms of chronic pain like this, that the approach that works best is the one that one most believes in. Mm. Right? Whether it's chiropractic, whether it's yoga, whether it's sarno, whether it's surgery, the reason why surgery tends to have the most immediate benefit right away is because surgery is effectively the most powerful placebo there is. But when you see research that's showing that three years after people who have had back surgery are as likely to have a back problem as the people who did not have the surgery, you have to start questioning the evidence around some of that stuff. Well, actually, it's because of lifestyle choices. I mean, if you, you think about a person who has surgery for a back issue and then three years later they have more issues, most likely they're living their life in the exact same way, which means they're putting the same stresses on their body they were doing before, like sitting at a desk all day or doing something like you're picking stuff up. Folks that work in like warehouses and things along those lines, you have to pick stuff up all the time and your body's not conditioned for it, so you have repetitive stress in that regard. There's a lot of issues uh, involving you know, you, what you, caused it in the first place. You may be right. Place. That could be it, and that certainly can trigger the pain, but I'm going to tell you, having been through the Sarno experience and have met many people since that who for whom it worked, 
developed. Mm -hmm. I think, and because the Sarno approach, if it works for you, is one where you get to see your body as whole once again and not as vulnerable. And because it pushes you to deal with underlying emotional stuff that may be driving some of this physical pain. I mean, for all those reasons, I think my, my view is when, I, when people ask me and I'll say, read Sarno's book, you know, on back pain, right? Or healing back pain. And I'll say, if it doesn't make sense to you, Try something else. But the thing about the Sarno thing is if it does work for you, it's in some respects the most miraculous of all the, of all the cures. Well, I think the Sarno approach is a great approach. Don't get me wrong. But I don't think they're mutually exclusive to taking care of your body in a physical sense. And I think that most people just don't take care of their body in a physical sense. They don't exercise. I think exercise and especially treating your core as if it is the foundation of your body, something that supports you all day long, your back. You know, there's very few people work out their back in a sense of like long static exercises like yoga where you're holding poses for 30 seconds, mm -hmm. you know, and doing one after the other and doing it over a course of like a night. It's not fun. Like you said, you can't get into it because you don't find it enjoyable. But the benefits of doing that, man, I'm telling you, I've, I just got into it about like less than a year ago. I've been doing it on a weekly basis, like fairly regularly. The benefits are tremendous. Hmm. I mean, your, your back just feels way better. Just feels like you have more, there's, it's more vigorous. With, the core, more with core exercises. Well, with yoga, with yoga, yoga exercises. Yeah. Yoga, a big part of what yoga works is, you know, what do we call our core? I mean, it's literally your, your, your spine, you know, from your neck down to your back. And that's a big part of what you're holding these poses. And, you, you know, you have to hold your body like in a, in a straight line. Like, what are you doing? You're, you're, you're supporting everything with your back and with your spine. It's not like lifting weights. It's, it's a different sort of thing where you're, holding your own body weight. Well, I'll tell you something, to return to where our conversation got going, one of the great things about living in Manhattan is we walk. Mm. And yeah. the result is that there's a lower incidence of obesity in much of Manhattan than there is in most of the United States. Makes sense. And that walking is one of the safest, and even for people who don't want to take out the time to exercise because walking is the way we get places, it turns out that we land up to live relatively healthy lives in a place like Manhattan, notwithstanding well, all the craziness. Think about it. I mean, what are you doing when you're walking? You're carrying, I mean, what do you weigh, 180 pounds or something like you that? You're it. carrying that 180 pounds around. Whereas that amount of energy and that amount of calorie expenditure is lost if you're sitting in the car, driving to work, getting in an elevator, going to your office, sitting in your cubicle, all that's lost. Mm -hmm. All that's lost. And it's probably thousands of calories a day. You're also making me think about you know, when I remember my experience with MDMA, uh, you know, how there are some people when they do MDMA and they just like to sit and get in a place. Mm -hmm. And other people like me just want to move, move around, you know, get the energy going and such, you know. I also found sometimes, you know, we talk about going back to the whole mushroom thing. I remember feeling, especially that, that sometimes in the mushrooms, you take them and they start to come on and I find, can find like it's like this energy force going into your body. And in some ways, times, the best way to deal with that stuff is movement. It's running. It's swinging around. It's, you know, moving around, like opening up your body to let that powerful energy in. Yeah, well, I think there's a lot of tension that people carry around their bodies where their bodies just aren't being used correctly or they're bunched up or they're not stretched out and they're confined and bound up and they have poor posture and then the stress of life and bills and all the things that are weighing down on you. I think in that sense, Sarno's got an excellent point that pressure and stress and pain and just frustration just causes you to be tense and everything is fucked up. And if you can address that and sort of relax a little bit, 
just that alone yeah. just will alleviate a lot of tension and that's a lot of what people carry around them that's also a lot of what people like about pot like you said how we like to smoke pot and stretch out what's going on there you're releasing yeah. you're releasing tension you smoke pot like man i love doing that before a show i like smoking a little weed before a show and stretching out you know it's one of my favorite things to do just sit, sit in a dressing room before i go on and just stretch warm up loosen up my back stretch my back out stretch my body out it's it's something that we don't do enough your, yeah. your meat vehicle move that fucker around no, i know i know it's true look man i work in an office a lot of the time and it's just so easy you get in that zone you're in front of that computer that's what you're doing you know and all of a sudden you realize your shoulders about no you're exactly right well you're you carrying know? especially if you have bad posture you're carrying it like if you're sitting like i you know when i had my back injury which was sports related but when I started getting treatment for it, I realized there's a lot of other underlying issues. And one of them is if you're sitting at a desk and you have poor posture, the strain, there's been a lot of studies done on this, the strain is in a very specific area. So instead of being straight where your back is carrying the weight in an even form through you know the top of your head all the way down to your lower back, you're causing this undue spot this weird spot in the middle mm -hmm. by slumping where you get all this pressure in this one area that really shouldn't be there. And over time, like cab drivers that have a, a thick wallet and they keep it in their back pocket and they sit on there, mm. they develop bulging discs in their back. Mm -hmm. It's just the slow water that causes the rock to go smooth. Well, the you other know, thing cuts thing a that, channel through the... You know, quite put a, I mean, for me, the thing I've learned from so many people, and it's basically the kind of common ingredient in almost all spiritual practices, meditation, practice is just simple deep breathing mm, right because yeah. just having to fill your lungs just it just forces you to have to sit up all of a sudden if you want to fill your lungs and that that breathing this just the slow breathing gets one to focus to center I mean I know that when I'm stressed oftentimes rather than just grabbing a drug because I think that's the wrong way to use drugs just trying to remember take a breath yeah try to take five breaths ten breaths slowly in and out and that's one of the best centering things there are. Well, you know, I've been teaching that to my five-year-old. I, I, I kind of taught her when she was three. We started talking about it. Like, she would get upset, like something would happen. Like, she would, either, like, stub her toe or just not even, like, a big deal, like, hurt or something would something would get her upset. And she would cry. And when she was crying, and then I fell yeah. down. And, I did, and I'd be like, you got to breathe in and breathe out. Let's do this together. We'll do it together. And I'd do it with her. I'm like, take a breath. And you're like, <laughs> it's hard for them because they're they're hyperventilating. And but it made me realize, like, well, that's a, a lot of people that go through that with issues in life. You know, yeah. you you have some incredibly stressful issue, and it just overwhelms you, <laughs> and you take this shallow, panicky breath. And yeah. you know, it's one thing when a three year old doesn't know how to deal with you know hurting herself or falling down or whatever it is that made her upset, but. When an adult, you know, gets mm -hmm. to 50 years old and they still don't know how to deal with stress, it's kind of a tragedy. Yeah. It's like either you have Well, we don't really teach that in our society anyway. You know, it's interesting, Joe, my, my niece has just started medical school, and I was asking her what she was thinking, specialty she was thinking about. And I was saying to her that my, I think if I had ever decided to pursue medicine instead of what I did do... I think the single most fascinating area of medicine right now is pain management. It is the most interdisciplinary of all areas because it requires you to understand physical pain, requires you to understand pharmaceuticals and you know biochemistry. It understand, but it also requires that element of understanding things like breathing and exercise and the body. And it's that area. I mean, 
the pain is such physical pain is such an epidemic in America today for all these reasons. You and I are giving different reasons and agreeing on a lot of it. But I think that becoming a more thoughtful and sophisticated society in terms of how we deal with this, how we alleviate it, how we prevent it, and doing so in a way in which the government is playing a positive role as opposed to a destructive role. Because right now, right, the role of the government vis-a-vis physicians who want to properly deal with pain management is intimidating them and scaring them. The, The way in which the pharmaceutical companies drive what drugs people have means that oftentimes people don't have access to the things they need. Meanwhile, the failure to think about the importance of breathing in our society, of posture, the things you're talking about, exercise, is another element of all this sort of stuff. And on some level, I think, you know, look, a lot of the drug problem has to do with issues of race and class and stuff like that. But a lot of it also has to do with this kind of pervasive sense of pain, physical and emotional pain that people are trying to treat in all sorts of ways. Yeah, I think you're right. I think um, it's also the the requirements of life are really unnatural. The life that we've set up for ourselves, the requirements of managing bills and dealing with taxes and dealing with the stress of marriage and the, the, the nonsense that comes with divorce and the chaos that comes with all sorts of different aspects of our life. It just it seems just overwhelming. And then the existential angst of your own mortality. It's compounding every day. The, the futility of getting up every morning when you want to stay in bed. The alarm goes off. You hit that fucking button. You get up and you put your fucking clothes on just like every other day. And you drink your coffee and you do your rituals. And you go to a, a job that you find unsatisfying. That is the vast majority of Americans mm-hmm. and probably of people in the world. I think that you live a fulfilling life. You're doing what you enjoy doing, and I'm very lucky to feel the same way. But I think that we're in the minority, and I think there's a, a, a large amount of people out there that are longing for something better than what they have. Yeah. Whether it's a better relationship, or it's a better connection to their family, or it's a better, uh, some rewarding thing to do with their time. Well, you see, I mean, part of that explains why more and more people are seeking out the church, whether it's evangelical churches or other types of things. Is that true? Things. I think so. I mean, look, you see those numbers growing, these mega churches that are happening, and you see other... But I think that the know, numbers of people that are involved in organized religion are actually dropping. I think the one who are going to the conventional churches, the more mainstream churches and synagogues, that's what's dropping. The ones who are being drawn to evangelical ones, the ones where they sort of are more attentive to bringing the spirit and the body into the practice of religion, right? Many evangelical churches, you know, you you dance, you move, you do all this sort of stuff. I think people doing the same thing in in the world that we know of psychedelics and doing these things, Mm. people want to link their body, their mind, their spirit, community. That's what... Look at millions of people, young people now, going to sort of the whole kind of uh, dance dance world, the nightlife world, all that stuff. Same thing, that kind of almost collective, quasi-religious, communitarian feeling of letting go in the company of others. I think people are, are, are so much want and need that. And it's a good thing for people to do that. To, to the extent it's not hurting other people or people are not getting hurt in the process. And that's another... One thing we started Drug Policy Alliance is a whole project on trying to keep young people safe as they're in this whole nightlife dance scene, right? People are taking all these drugs or doing things. Sometimes they're drinking too much. They're overheating and people get hurt. And the question is, young people going out and enjoying themselves for hours or days, listening to music, being with another moving, and even doing mind-altering drugs can be a perfectly healthy and good and even liberating thing, good for their lives. But we need to make sure it's being done safe. That notion of making our societies as safe as possible for people to open up and let go, whether it's with or without drugs, I think is something we have to evolve towards. I think you're dead right. 
but I also think that the issue is that we haven't built a foundation of stability in these people up to this point where they're taking these exploratory journeys of the mind. I mean, their their foundation is fucked up. They're, you know, there's so much going on outside of that that they need to take care of before they just dive into the world of psychedelics. And it's one of the reasons why people have bad trips. I mean, what is a bad trip? You're resisting all the things that these drugs are exposing. You put these blinders on, gone through this life, and whether it's childhood trauma or, you know, unfulfilled expectations that are haunting you, whatever it is that's, that is causing the quote-unquote bad trip, a lot of what that is is resisting the message that these boundary-dissolving experiences are, are giving you. What they're sending you as a message is that you're, inherently unhappy you're, you're unhappy in, in almost like a cellular level and that it's not as simple as just like diving in and and having a mushroom trip and it's all gonna clear out you've got to deal with the foundation of your own personality yeah but yeah I, mean, I, I agree the question is how do we do that really right I, don't I mean, know if we I mean can now we all think the board. when you look at you know now I mean look at younger people who are on the internet 24 7 it's constant, you know. Look, look, I was, you look, just stand on any corner and see the number of people walking around looking at their at their you know little gadget, right. Right? looking at their Facebook, looking at this or whatever, right? People are interacting with the world in an entirely different way, right? And then of course the way society is evolving so quickly, you know, entrepreneurial folks can thrive, but for huge numbers of people, there's no sense of security about what the the economy, the society is going to be like in the future. I mean, we are kind of hurtling into the future. Artificial intelligence is going all sorts of crazy places. All sorts of jobs are being displaced by robotics and things like that. So, you know, I mean, just talking with my, my daughter, my daughter who's now twenty, about to be twenty-seven, and you know, it's just, it's, it's a, it's a whole. The world is, is it, the pace of change is so remarkable in this regard, and there's so few guides, and and the ability of the parental world to play a constructive role. First of all, many parental, many parents aren't that good as parents, or they're not that good at helping young people, you know. Um, but beyond that, they're so disconnected sometimes from what's going on for you know kids growing up in a whole different way, right? When I think when I was growing up in the '60s and the early '70s, you know, the pace of change was so much slower then than it is now, right? So. I don't know what the cure to all that stuff is. Yeah, I think we're going to have to adapt to this new world where people are getting information at such a staggering rate that you got to decide how to manage it. And, you know, some, like my friend Ari, Ari Shafir, he switched to a flip phone. He's like, fuck this. I can't do this anymore. Because he would say, he would tell me that he would get up in the morning and then he would spend like a half an hour going over Facebook and going over all this and that before he ever got anything done. Now he just gets up and does stuff. And if he wants to take care of all his bullshit, he does it on a computer. So he sits down. He says, okay, now I'm going to answer my emails. Now I'm going to, yeah. instead of just constantly being attached to social media. Joe, Joe, I, got to, I had a weird experience. I accidentally signed up for Facebook two weeks ago, right? <laughs> I, ha I have this public Facebook account, which like my staff managed, but then my phone got lost and I had to res get, reset the whole thing. And I had to reset it. My Spotify account was hooked up to my Facebook thing and the f fat, fat password. Next thing you know, bing, bing, bing. All of a sudden I created my own personal Facebook thing. And so now I'm trying to figure out what do I do with it? So I friended a few people, a few people I work with. They were all freaked out that the boss has friended them, you know? And, and, and now I'm scrolling through and I'm going, Oh, God, now I understand what people are looking at, and uh, you know, you just see, you talk about sugar fat salt. Nothing more addictive than that little gadget there. Yeah, it's very addictive. I've I've backed off way hard over the last few months. 
over the last few months, I very rarely even go on my own message board. I have a message board on my website that I've had since 1998, and I go on there occasionally and check to see what, what's going on in the news or what people are talking about or debating and this and that, but I find it to be uh, there's, a, there's a massive requirement of time to check all these different things, to check Facebook and Twitter, and then there's so, social media, uh, there's websites that I visit, there's message boards that I visit, different websites that uh, aggregate uh, news stories, and it's just too much. It's I just too much. You, I backed way off of it over the last couple of months. I try to stick with the discipline that there will be at least once or a few times a year where I will go into a total blackout on any communication using that gadget. I did a vacation a few years ago for seven days where I did not pick up my laptop, computer, even my phone, my, you know, nothing, right? And, for, you know, for the first day or two, like, my, my hand was, like, like fidgeting, you know, like it was going through withdrawal from that whole sort of thing. But I have to say, I got to day six, and I had achieved a level of calm that I associated with, like, you know, botting surfing as a 12-year-old on the beach. I mean, it was so, so good. And I got to tell you something. I haven't done it since I did it for a few days over Christmas. I am so looking forward to finding some days the next week or two where I'm going to do that again. Almost brings tears to my eyes when I think about that level of disconnection. I think, I think human beings need to do that. Well, I, I certainly don't think that we're designed to deal with the influx of information and the, the opinions of other people uh, thrown at you on, on mass, like, like we get with social media. I just think it's too much, and I think it's very addictive. Communication is addictive in just being able to, like you always think you're going to miss out on something. There's going to be some new thing that comes out that you, you, you're not aware of. And I think that managing that is, is really critical because we're not, we haven't de developed to, to, to deal with that. This is, yeah. this is a completely new thing. And I don't think we're designed, even media, I think just the, the movies and songs, there's a lot, bunch of people running around out there that don't have a realistic view of human beings because their view of human beings is based on heroes in movies and songs playing when people talk and everybody either acts nobly or they act obviously evil. It's like these ideas of human beings well, are we, shaped by fiction. And when people are doing that, you're getting, as opposed to reading, reading novels as I did when I was younger but barely do today, you get a much more deeper and nuanced sense of human beings by reading novels than you possibly can by watching a movie or right. by watching a thing, right? So you're exactly right. Same thing with body shapes, body consciousness, all the ways in which that's so screwed up in our society, once again, shaped by the media. I mean, I'm trying to do my few little disciplines, like trying not to look at my, at my phone over the last, you know, the last hour before I go to sleep, because they say you sleep better if you don't do that. You know, just trying to find some space, some time, trying to turn off the ringer, you know, more often. Uh, just some way of carving out that space. Yeah, I think that that's a good thing. It's a good thing to manage what's coming in. It's a very, very good thing to manage what's coming in because you just can't, you can't rely on all these other people to to have access and, and to be able to input, you know, into your own mind. It's just too many. There's too many people out there that want to. First of all, how many people just want to bark at you to get attention? How many? Be, if you were fucking doing your job, pot would already be legal. And you read that, you're like, what the fuck, man? I don't even know this guy, and he's yelling at me that yeah. I'm not doing my job. He doesn't know what I'm doing. Yeah. He doesn't even know me. He doesn't want to know you. What he wants is attention, and he's using this as a vehicle, like a whiny baby, yeah. screaming out for attention. And oftentimes, that squeaky wheel does get the no, grease. No, I say I don't even read a lot of that stuff that shows up on various.
various, you know, public outlets when I when I speeches go up on YouTube or stuff like that. But, you can. It, but it, it's 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 true. It's just the other thing, of course, there's a power dynamic here, which is that for people who work for somebody, the risk that we're moving into society where your boss or your employer expects you to be accessible. Uh, you know, so like I let my staff all know at the Equality Alliance, if they get an email from me on a weekend, which they might because I sometimes work on weekends, there is no obligation and no expectation that they answer that thing till Monday, right? I mean, that just so people know there's a sense of space. Well, I have right? a friend who goes to work on Monday and his boss will get pissed at him if he doesn't answer emails from the night before. Like he'll get an email at night and he's like, why didn't you respond to that email? And he's like, look, I, you know, I came home. I want to spend time with my family. He's like, look, there's no excuse. Check your email. Yeah. Check your email. He's like, what no. the fuck kind of a job have I gotten? No. That's not the definition of a civilized society. And isn't that what's going on with drug testing? Because if someone's telling you that you can't smoke a joint after work, what they're telling you is they own your body. They own your body. Because if you smoke a joint at 9 o'clock at night and you go to work at 9 o'clock in the morning, guess what? That joint's gone. Doesn't, does, the, the, the effects don't linger. Quite frankly, the employer has a greater basis if you come to work Monday night morning hungover because that may of course, affect. That will. They, may, the employer has a better, if you've been up all night because you were in pain or having a fight with your wife or your kid was sick, that may affect work performance. But the fact that you smoked a joint on a Saturday or did something else and you're fine on a Monday, none of their damn business. This is ultimately about sovereignty of our own minds and bodies, right? I mean, the core principle right here is that we are all sovereign over our own minds and bodies and that my boss, my government, has no power to tell me what I do to my own body you know, or my own mind so long as I am not hurting another soul. That has to be the core principle of a free society. Not only that, it's the same sort of argument with, when, when in, in respect to doing crimes when you're on these drugs. Like the crimes themselves are the issue, and the punishment should be in relation to the crimes. It should have absolutely nothing to do with what substance caused you to do exactly. the crime. Exactly. Yes, exactly. My, my view on this thing is that if you use drugs and you don't hurt another soul, that's none of the government's business. If you use drugs and you go out and hurt someone, Somebody, well, the fact that you use drugs or that you were addicted, right, you have to be held just as accountable, right? Somebody's drug addiction cannot be an excuse that will allow them to do harm to others. That said, and there's a little position in the middle, that if a judge in his wisdom or somebody else decides that you hurt this person and it was driven by your drug addiction and decides that you should go to some treatment program instead of jail because that's better for you and better for society, then that might be the reasonable compromise. But ultimately, people need to be held responsible for their actions as affects other people. Yeah, that that's very well put, the reasonable compromise. and But it's very difficult to leave that in the hands of the judges because when you let judges impose their own moral ideas and uh, attach their own. I mean, there's been so many instances just really recently. There was a guy who got in a fight with his girlfriend's ex-boyfriend and beat him up. And the judge told him that if he didn't want to go to jail, he had to marry the girl. <laughs> like, who the fuck is this judge? And here's another one where this, ju this young boy, he's 19 years old. He was on this uh, social media application. It's, I think it's called Hot or Not where you, uh, you, someone decides whether or not they think you're hot. I've and heard it, yeah. So he uh, contacts this girl. She's 17, goes and drives to her house, has sex with her. Turns out she's 14. So now he's uh, locked up. They put him in this, uh, this database as a sex offender. I read and, about this. Yeah, and one of the, the judge, one of the judge's statements is that 
sex should be something that people do when they're in love and that it should be this very important thing, this sacred thing. And you shouldn't be involved in these uh, social media things where you just go around fucking each other. Yeah. Like, who, who the fuck well, is I, he? I got to tell you, we have, a, for, my, for Drug Policy Alliance, the problem of drug court judges. Yeah. I mean, some of these guys are doing the Lord's work, but so many of them are simply imposing their own moralistic views about drug use. They're telling people, okay, I won't send you to prison as long as you're clean and sober for the rest of your life, for as long as you're under my supervision. And if somebody wants to smoke a joint, that then becomes a basis for taking away their freedom. So there's something fundamentally wrong with assuming that judges who are not trained in these areas, who have their own biases and prejudices, should be determining the you know how people live a life when they haven't done anything to hurt anybody else. Well, it comes down to human beings being put in positions of power over other human beings. And once you can dictate what happens to that person's freedom, that's an intoxicating feeling to a lot of these guys and they or, or gals. And they just choose to impose their own viewpoints on that person because they can, because they gets, that's how they get their rocks off. So well, that, that's how they avoid their own existential angst. That's how they avoid their own depression by imposing power you know, over Joe, these other people. That's Judge Judy, right? I mean, that's... That's that show. It's horrible. The, the whole show the is she's a cunt venal, and she's allowed to be. Yeah. The most venal of all the actors. Remember, we're talking about the role in which money is driving the prison industrial complex and what you're saying about judges. The worst of all the actors are the prosecutors. Those mm. guys, because it's all about power. It's right. about interpersonal power. It's about power within the criminal justice system. For many of them, it's about making a name for themselves by beating up people and thereby, you know, running for for politics. Mm -hmm. And they're, ultimately, it's not money in many cases. It's about power. Power right? and showing how effective you've been as a prosecutor. Yeah. Look at my record. And in that sense, I liken it to sports. I think the real problem with prosecution and even with police is that it becomes a winning and losing thing if the guy got off you lost it's not that the guy was innocent it's not that you were incorrect in assuming that he had broken the law and should be punished by the laws of our society by the rules that we've d uh, agreed to govern ourselves by no no no. it's a game it's a game like basketball it's a well, point we've, driven game we've decided in America that we're gonna have an adversarial system of justice yes, right that's we're, a good I, way of putting right it. and and but what happens of course is that most of the power unless you're rich is in the hands of the government and the prosecutor. It's why poor people are getting, look, why does America have the highest incarceration rate in the world? Why do we have the highest incarceration rate of any democratic society in history? Why do we lack up more black people at a rate that far exceeds the rates of incarceration in the Soviet gulags of the 30s, 40s, and 50s? In part, it's because we have an adversarial system that's fundamentally broken, and where the cops and the prosecutors drive this thing overwhelmingly, and where if you are the typical person in that system who doesn't have money to hire a good lawyer stuff like that, you are going to be reamed and you're going to be caught in a system where you may never escape it. You know, why America, we didn't used to be, right? We had an incarceration rate that was basically at the world average for most of our history. But in the last 40 years, we went just you know, apeshit in terms of locking people up in this country, especially black people. That's the thing we have to fight to pull back from. That's where we have to undermine the power of the, of the money-driven interests, the corporations and the prison guards unions. It's where we have to challenge the abuse of power by, 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 by by judges and especially with prosecutors. They have to be pulled back in a major way. And the sheriffs, I should say, because in California, you got the sheriffs who are the ones trying to build new jails and keep marijuana illegal and all this sort of stuff. That gross engorgement of power in the hands of people whose job it is to take away people's freedom and to use no judgment in the ways they do that or minimal judgment and the presumption that if you violate a law, you have to lose your freedom. That's what screwed things up so badly in our society. That's the 
movement we're trying to build to end. And on that, Joe, I got to go to my next meeting. Beautiful. Yeah. You nailed it. Okay, Thank you, man. sir. Thank really you. appreciate it. Let's do this again. When are you, I, in, are you I, in town often? I come to town fairly often. I may be back here in October with a ballot initiative in California coming up in 2016. You know, uh, so I'm here a lot. Well, yeah. Let's do it in October, man. Come Sounds on back. Good. Let's work on that ballot initiative. Let's get people active. Sounds good. Thank Joe. you, Ethan. Really, really appreciate it, and man. Great to meet really you. Fun. Great, great to meet you, too. Really appreciate it. Thank you. All right, fuckers. See you soon. That was fun. That was great.